I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Check engine light on? Take the guesswork out of your check engine light with O'Reilly Veriscan. It's free and provides a report with solutions based on over 650 million vehicle scans verified by ASE certified master technicians. And if you need help, we can recommend a shop for you. Ask for O'Reilly Veriscan today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon. This is episode number 272. And today on the show, we're joined by Matt Ross and Tim Russell of the Quality Deer Management Association to discuss trees, forests, and forestry for deer hunters. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Onyx. And today on the show, we're talking about trees and forests and how they impact deer and deer hunting and how we as hunters can influence those forests to improve deer hunting and a whole bunch of things like that. So in other words, we're talking about forestry and timber management for deer hunters. And joining us to discuss this topic is Matt Ross, the Assistant Director of Conservation for the Quality Deer Management Association, and Tim Russell, a forester and the young forest specialist for the QDMA. And this is a topic that, of course, is probably the the very most relevant to hunters who get a say in habitat management of the places that they hunt. So if you fall into that bucket, uh, get ready for what I think is probably our most thorough deep dive we've ever done into the timber-related things when it comes to management of habitat. But I also want to make it clear that I did want to find ways to make this conversation relevant to all hunters, even if you know you're hunting private land by permission or hunting public land. Um, so we talk about things along the lines of you know what kinds of forest habitat or age of forest or features of forest can we key in on when we're hunting public land? Um, or we also talked about, for example, ways that we can influence forestry management and habitat management on public lands. Um, so I think there's something in here for everyone. I'm excited about that. It's a it's a real, like I said, I, I, say, <laughs> I use this word a lot, deep dive, but it really is a deep dive into this stuff that I think uh, is, is interesting and not talked about a whole lot. So I'm hoping you guys will enjoy it as much as I did. I, I, I talked to Matt and Tim already, but I'm back here now in the future with my co-host Dan Johnson because before we get to the big dance, we did want to have a pregame show and uh, catch up a little bit on current events in our own whitetail worlds and whatnot. So, Dan, what is uh, what is new with you, my nine-fingered friend? Well, I'll tell you what, relating to the topic, uh, I just found out that I think this year or next year the, um, the timber that we had that I hunt in is under some forestry preserve type thing where they can go in and log it 
specific type times a year, but you can't do any other alterations to certain portions of it. Okay. So, so I think in the upcoming, like, I want to say year, I might actually be able to go in and talk to the landowner about maybe doing some hinge cutting and creating some, uh, some possible habitat work on some like low value trees, yeah. identifying low value trees and, uh, maybe create some hinge cutting opportunities on uh, the farm that I hunt. And, uh, so when I, when I brought that up to her originally, she said, no, I can't allow that because it's in this forestry program, but you know, whatever. Now I asked her again about it and she's like, well, that should, that should be up sometime soon. So I think I might be able to do some, some habitat work on this farm in, uh, in the upcoming years. That'd be pretty cool. Have you, have you, has this been something that you've been kind of brainstorming about? Are there areas you already have in mind that you really want to try to improve bedding? Absolutely. Especially on like the wide open pieces of timber that are, that are there. I would love to just take a a chainsaw in there and, uh, make a couple pockets. Yeah. It's, it's amazing what you can do with a chainsaw. I've, I've only been able to do a little bit of it myself, but when you, you hear about some of these other projects that some folks are doing that have, you know, full control of their properties, it's, it's quite a tool if you, you know, got to use it safely, of course, but if you use safely, it, it, it can, the simple, the simple change of just getting sunlight to hit the floor can really change a habitat. Um, which kind of we bring this up when I when I was talking to Matt about this originally, we brought up the situation that you had. I don't know, was it three years ago now that your main property got logged, and right. that year you were all stressed about it. It was kind of messing right. up your hunting. You thought, and I remember thinking, well, you know, let's wait a year or two though. You might be pretty happy about it then. Do you feel like are you starting to see some positive results from that at all yet? Well, I'll tell you that the places that did get logged, right? There was more sunshine that is allowed to hit the forest floor. Uh, the treetops are still there and around the tree, uh, treetops grew all these smaller trees, grew all these, um, you know, cause they didn't clean it out like a guy would if he was actually managing for deer, right? They chopped down the tree, they left the tops and they pulled the, the trunk out. That's really all they did. Mm-hmm. Right. But the places where they did that and knocked down and the sunlight can get in, it is thick and it is nasty. And it's not in any specific spot, right? So like if me and you were uh, going to go into a timber, we would want to do it in specific areas, right? So all they did was go into where the the, the valued trees were at and cut down the valued trees, yeah, right? Yeah. So maybe it's not in the best possible place for a, a quote unquote bedding area. However, it is thicker and it does allow more cover uh, and lower browse for the deer. Did you have you seen increased deer activity around those spots at all last year or previous years? Yeah, but I I'm gonna say yes with an asterisk because I feel like th- the deer were still moving through that area. Maybe they just slowed down a little bit because there was some browse there that wasn't there before. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. Well, to your point then, it would be nice if you could supplement that then with a little bit more targeted spots. And, and put, Absolutely. Are you, so you're thinking maybe of increasing the cover available in spots that deer already want to bed? It's like a ridge top or something like that? Is that the kind yeah. of thing you're thinking? 
Yeah, some, something a little bit off the top of the ridge, yeah. right? And create – so there's one specific spot on the farm where there's a pinch point and then there's a diagonal trail up the ridge. You know, that doesn't crest the ridge, but it kind of goes up at an angle to the point and then back down the other side. So imagine like a, a, a upside-down U and a, kind of a line going right through the center of it. And that's that trail. I would love to do some kind of hinge cutting on – either side of that trail and maybe make that kind of like a, a bedding area, but at the same time, a, an edge, if you know what I mean, yep. to where the deer, cause we all know deer love working edges. And if I could create a little bit more edge where the wide open meets the thickness, then uh, I feel I can even make that pinch point stronger. Yeah. That seems to make a lot of sense. That's, that's a huge, a huge upside of when you can do some small cuts like that, you, like you said, add that transition, that edge, and you can start directing traffic through an area in a way that you otherwise wouldn't have. And I, I kind of, you know, with some small hinge cutting of my own on one of the properties I hunt in Michigan, I mean, not a large area, probably, I don't know, an acre, may, maybe an acre kind of long and skinny right. area where I did some some kind of selective hinge cutting through there handful of years ago now, um, made what's possibly one of the best bedding areas now on one of these properties that I hunt in Michigan. It, it went from being a spot that I never hunted to now being at least in the top two areas for me to hunt during the rut. It's like the main place I'm, I'm saving to hunt during the rut now because so many bucks are cruising through there because that little bedding area is holding a couple doe family groups now and at least one doe family group, possibly two on one on either side. And you're always getting bucks cruising through there. And it just took, you know, an afternoon with a chainsaw cutting a handful of trees. And I even bumped a, a nice buck out of there this summer. Um, so yeah, it's, it's an easy way to do some cool stuff. So that's exciting that you might be able to test the waters with that. Right. And the other, the other thing is there's a ridge top right? And it leads from one, this like op more open spot into, it was like an old camp. There's an old camp, uh, church camp on this property. And I'm, when I mean old, I mean like dilapidated, just the foundations there. And it's called kind of grown up and deer frequent this spot as a transition, a kind of a transition area between bedding and, uh, the, a big egg field. And there's this really big giant, tree in there with a huge canopy, right? So what I would love to do and it underneath this canopy, like nothing grows, right? Uh, there's, there's some smaller stuff in there, but what I would love to do is basically clear out an area and plant some kind of kill plot, right? Something that's like an acre. That's it. Yeah. Right? just something maybe even smaller than that real small and uh, have the ability to get something to slow down coming through this or maybe go out of their way off the original trail, come up, scent check it on their way to main ag. And I feel that uh, this spot would be money if I could just trim one big branch off of this, this big, bigger tree and knock down a couple other trees on the edge, letting some more addition, some additional sunlight in. If I could do that, man, another money spot man that would be that would be nice yeah. speaking of those little food plots i was just working on a little food plot project of my own this past week um two things of note with that one that we never talked about but um the first thing i did is i've got this 
main food plot system on my main Michigan property that we've talked about a lot over the years. You know the spot where I talked about Holyfield a lot, trying to kind of fine-tune this spot for him. Um, and then ultimately that's where I killed Frank this past year. Uh, two things. Number one, I frost-seeded it this last week. Yeah. You familiar with frost-seeding? Have you heard people yes, talk about that? Yep. Yeah. Yep. So, so for those who aren't familiar, this is basically a way to to kind of supplement a food plot or to plant a new food plot without needing to disc or till up an area. So, basically, in my situation, I'm just trying to um, to kind of what's the word I'm looking here? Strengthen a food plot that's been here for a long time. This is a perennial clover food plot that I've had planted in this spot for I don't know, yeah, six seven years now. Um, but it's, it's, it's getting a little bit patchy. There's a bunch of weeds coming in an area. So I want to try to fill it out and I'm doing that by overseeding it right now. So this past week we we're still frozen ground, but it was going to be thawing out here and get some rain. And then it was going to freeze again with some cold nights and it was going to thaw it again. And when that happens, if you have seed that you put on top of the ground at this time, as that freeze and thaw, freeze and thaw cycle goes back and forth it kind of heaves and then lowers the soil. The soil heaves and then it sinks back down again. And that kind of sucks the soil down in, and incorporates it into the soil itself, allowing you to get the seed-to-soil contact you need for those seeds to germinate. Um, so it, it was as simple as going out there and broadcasting the seed over top of the plot, and that was it. That's all I had to do to kind of replant this food plot and make it you know, really nice and, and lush and thick again. So that was a really easy thing I did. I think it was... I don't know, Wednesday or Thursday this past week. Took me 15 minutes, um, and now that plot's going to be in great shape this year, I think. Uh, But while I was out there, I had kind of an aha moment, Dan. Um, I was was finishing up that plot, and then I looked over – to the larger section. So I don't know if you if you remember, but basically this this plot has has kind of two sections. There's a little clover plot. If you imagine this is like a imagine a, a pie and you take a quarter of the pie out. So you got a quarter piece of the pie missing. Yep. That is this food plot. And the at the center of the pie, so the narrowest end of that triangle on my pie piece, yep. that's where the clover plot is. So they got a small like quarter acre clover there. And then there's a strip of big thick grass that kind of just circles it. And then the rest of the pie piece, so the main portion of the pie piece extending out to the crust, that is the larger piece of the food plot, which is my brassicas and my oats, which I've used here for like four or five years now. I rotate them in strips. Okay. Um, so that's what I had planted there. I don't know if you, again, these little details, I don't know if you remember this either, but last year I made one significant shift to that plot. What I did in the past was that oat and brassica section of the plot, that was planted almost right up to the edge of the property line, right up close to it. I was trying to maximize as much food as I get in there. But as you probably recall from the past two years of hunting Holyfield, I had numerous encounters where he would kind of get to the edge of it but would stay on the neighbors and wouldn't cross over into the food plot where I could shoot. Remember I had a bunch of situations like that? They hold up. Yeah. Didn't want to step out into the open. So in 2018, I thought, well, what if I were to just push the food plot further into my property and then what used to be food plot, just let that regrow up into tall grass and brush and brambles and have that cover, but on my side. So maybe Holyfield or whatever future buck is in here, maybe he would still 
come into the cover, but it would now be on my property. So he would come in 20 yards onto my side of the property that I could shoot him, but he's not into the wide open where he didn't want to go yet. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I made that change last year and then didn't really think anything about it the rest of the year. Holyfield disappeared. You know how the whole thing went. But as I was sitting out there the other day, I'm looking at this and kind of looking around and fiddling. And I got to thinking, whoa, if I hadn't made that change, if I hadn't pushed that food plot out and let all that cover grow up, I don't know if I would have got the shot at Frank because Frank came out into that area but stayed inside the tall grass that was not there in 2017. Yeah. But in 2018, he was able to be on my side of the line but in the tall grass. He yep. felt comfortable stepping out there, walked 20, 30 yards onto my side of the line, and I got the shot. Yeah. Um so that was kind of like a light bulb moment. Like, wow, there's an example of one tiny tweak I made, one small change um, that I'd made for Holyfield. But in this case, you know, that small tweak ended up leading to getting a shot at this other buck. Um, right. I don't think that's something I brought up in the past. It, it kind of hit me again. Yeah, I, I remember you talking about it, but I also remember past guests on the show talking about softening edges, right? Yeah. So when they take a hard edge, like a, a straight ag field onto a timber, right? The deer, if there's ever like a buffer strip or something like that, it's almost like they seem comfortable coming out in the wide open before they hit the main ag. So what they'll do is they'll cut trees down and they'll lay them right in that hard edge. And then what that does is the grass grows up, softens it up. So there's a little bit more of a, a, a staging area between this wide open bare ground. And, uh, yeah, you hear them talk about it all the time. So it's no doubt it worked, right? Yeah, it was it was cool to see that fleshed out and actually come into reality. Um, and another one of those reasons why when you have the ability to do some habitat stuff, it is cool to be able to you know move a chess piece one spot and then wait and see how it changes things. And in this case, it was a chess piece that was moved to the right spot and, and made a what was a small change made a big difference. I think now when I'm now that I'm thinking back on it more. So yeah, that was absolutely. Cool. Do you have absolutely. any other uh, Do you have any other big spring projects coming up for your hunts other than possibly trying to get that plot and possibly doing some some timber some cutting? Yeah. So so the plot is probably not going to happen, but potentially the uh the timber uh some of the tree trimming might happen and unfortunately i don't think it can happen until the because i'd love to do it get out there and do it right now but i just don't think it's going to be able to happen until april if it does happen i still have to clear it with her and um you know the landowner and she's she probably has to run it by her family you know uh so i don't think uh i'm gonna like I'm optimistic because she's pretty cool with me doing whatever I want out there. However, when it comes to like land manipulation, um, you know, they just want to make sure their 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 investment of their property is producing long term, and they you know they don't want me to cut down any trees that may you know get them some value later on down the line. Yeah, yeah. Um, so if you're not doing that kind of stuff yet, you are shed hunting though, right? We haven't talked since shed rally. Looked right. like you guys had a good day there on uh, the Sunday of Shed Rally. Is that right? Yeah, a couple people had some good days. Uh, I found one. I found. I ended up finding one antler on Shed Rally, and it was something fairly small. So I let Ben Harshine's boy, Jack, I, I dropped it on a trail. And then I uh, told Ben and his wife, I go, hey, I dropped a shed up there. Take take their son, Jack, right? I said, take him up there, walk up this trail. And he ended up finding it again. So nice. That's I walked cool. away. 
I walked away with zero antlers, found one, but overall, you know, had some fun with that crew that was there. And some other guys walked away with quite a few sheds and, uh, one big four point side, just a hammer of an antler and, uh, like real long main beam, real long, you know, no junk on it. But other than that, you know, this entire shed season has been crazy. I mean, up where I live, there's still snow in the timber, right? Yeah. And, uh, if, if it's open, I'm sure people have walked it and that with the fertilizer on the properties and high water on the river bottoms, all my spots just didn't produce this year. And so I, I just, I shed hunted less and I'm okay with that because I'm busy. Yeah. I saw you, um, you posted, this was a couple weeks ago. I don't think I mentioned it on the podcast though, but a couple weeks ago you, uh, did a little Instagram video talking about how you went out and you didn't find any sheds at all. And you right. said that that was the first time in like two or three or four years, the first time in years that you've gone yeah. out shed hunting and not found an antler. Yeah, it was nuts, man. I, I can, every time that I've, I go out right now, I remember I've refined these spots to points where, okay, if I, if I've shed hunted a place five or six years in a row and it doesn't produce more than likely I'm not going to go walk that piece anymore because of the limited time that I have. Right. So I'm going to my high production spots. I'm going to the buffer strips, the waterways, you know, the, the bedding areas and like some ag fields and stuff. And if they don't produce, I'm not going into the timber looking for them, especially this year with just the large amount of snow and the, the water that we've had. So it's the first time in a while where, I went to some of these spots and there was no sheds there and I I was like, whoa. So I, I, I was driving back home and I was thinking about, I was like, man, that's gotta be two years of shed hunting that I, it's like I got skunked that day. Right. And I mean, me get skunked. I'm not saying like going out with, you know, when the last time that we went up with uh, that whole crew in Northeast Iowa, um, that, I, I personally didn't find a shed, but the crew did. Yeah. Right? I count, I count that as a win, but me personally running on a solo mission, I didn't, I didn't find a shed. So it was, it was nuts. Yeah. And when I heard you say that on your Instagram story, I just thought to myself, there's millions of people out there who don't have one ounce of sympathy for you. Damn it. Right. I know. I'm thinking I in know. my head, man, he has gone two years without going out once without finding one. And I thought to myself, Nine ninety nine out of every one hundred times I go shed hunting, I don't find anything. <laughs> so, right. but man. And the reason I say that is because I mean, back in the day, I would go four days, five days without finding a shed, right, and then run into a pocket of them, and you know, find a whole bunch of sheds. Uh, and now I just don't go shed hunting in the, I guess, the lower the lower statistic areas, I guess is if that's what you want to say, right? The chances of me finding a shed where I go shed hunting are higher. Yeah. That's smart. That's where historically the deer have been. So yeah, it looked like you, uh, sorry. The the cool thing is though, uh, what was it? Saturday morning, right? Like we hadn't had sunshine here in Iowa for a while. Saturday morning was gorgeous. And I wanted to get my kids out of the house. My, my son and daughter, And we ended up going on a, and I'm using my quotations, right? My one good hand and my one bad hand. So it looks like a (laughs) quote and a comma (laughs) (laughs) or a a apostrophe. And uh, so I took, I I grabbed uh, two sheds 
out of my like my smaller shed pile and uh i ended up uh i ended up taking my uh my oldest boy and my daughter out and uh we went out in this cornfield walked around and i dropped two sheds out and they uh they found them and they were pretty jacked man it was pretty fun doing that yeah i saw the pictures that was awesome well how did how did mac react when he picked that up uh so <laughs> have you ever seen like the only thing that i can remember like is like a superhero i'll just use the incredible hulk right <laughs> where he stops and this like this just face twitches and he gets <laughs> like, like that like yeah. when, so we were in this little grassy area and I, and I was like okay buddy it's in here somewhere i just know it right and obviously i dropped it out of my coat so i yeah. know it's there and both times i dropped the sheds out of the coat they landed tines down Oh, so, <laughs> so it, it's not like they stood out, right? It looked like a, uh, a stalk of corn. So he's walking around, he's walking around. And finally I go, buddy, you got to look at the ground. Cause every time a bird would sound off or a, the geese would fly overhead, he's looking in the air. Right. <laughs> yeah. So finally I put him on the line. I said, walk straight. There's gotta be one here somewhere. I just have a good feeling, buddy. He runs, walks up to it and he's just like, Oh, 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 dad, dad, I found one. <laughs> oh, he was Jack, man. He was Jack. And he was jacked for about five minutes, 10 minutes, you know, and I got a couple pictures out of the deal and he ended up, uh, he ended up happy, but you know how kids are, right? They lose interest real fast. So instead, yeah. instead of him scooping every five minutes, I, I, I only brought one out when I probably should have brought more than one out, but I did the same thing with my daughter and <laughs> she, she kicked it with her boot like two times <laughs> before every time she walked up to it, she'd kick it. And then obviously she knows more than me. Right. So she's like, dad, we've covered this area. There's no sheds here. Let's go to the next <laughs> spot. I'm just like, sweetie, what? And I'm talking about the, like a, a 50 foot grass strip. That's two foot wide along the side of this cornfield. Oh, and so she's walking up and down and she finds it. She's like, dad, I got one. She got all, she got all excited. And you know, it was something, it was something 45 minutes is all it was from the time we got there, got out of the truck, got back in the truck, 45 minutes. But what I feel that did, right, they're, they're obviously not ready for a four-hour shed hunt, right? So I feel what that did was that just small, a very small piece of it at a time, get yeah. interested. And then maybe the next time we go out for a little bit longer and maybe the next time I don't put any sheds down and we teach them about patience, right? And, yeah. Uh, and, you know, and just getting them outside is so important and I'm learning that now. Right. And the mud was there and they got dirty and it, I had to do some extra things, right. I had to make sure that they had their gloves and their stocking caps and their boots on and the back of my truck got dirty because they, you know, they were kicking the back of the seats after they were stomping in mud. But I really didn't care because I had a blast. I had just as much fun with them. And even though those sheds were sta staged, right. I had a, I had an absolute blast just being out there and watching their reactions. Yeah, you it can't you can't beat that. I uh, I know what you mean. I'm I'm just starting, you know, to get Everett out there doing those things, and he can walk now. So now that it's gotten not so miserably cold and the snow's melted, I've been taking him out into the woods now and just letting him kind of walk around out there and explore. It, I guess the walk around is is a stretch. It's more like he will just stand there. He's a little nervous to walk in the forest. For, yeah. He's just not 
like comfortable with the uneven ground, I think, and everything. So it takes him a long time to get going. And then sometimes if I hold his hand, then he'll start walking. And once he builds a little confidence, then he'll then he'll go slowly on his own. But, you know, he's picking up every leaf. He's pointing at a tree and he says, what's that? What's that? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. He's grabbing every bush. He, I, I brought him up to big rubs and let him like pull out the, the bark or the, you know, the ripped yep. up tree bark shredded off of the rubs. He's grabbing that. Um, so that that's fun. And uh, I think by next year, and maybe even I'll take him out here in the next couple of days or something and just put an antler out there and, and let him grab it. Because I know yeah. like, he, he doesn't really know what's going on, but he does He does have like a fascination with antlers because, you know, in my, my kind of man cave room with all the bucks on the wall and stuff, he comes in there and he points at every one of them and he says buck. And then he goes over the table where I've got just a bunch of antlers in a big pile and he's always trying to grab them. Um, so I'm sure if he saw – well – I think if he saw one in the woods right in front of him, he'd pick it up and get excited maybe. So yeah, I think I'm going to test that theory here soon because that would be cool to see. Yeah. And they wanted to – like my my daughter, if it was just her, I probably would have gotten away with getting in the timber a little bit more. But my son – you know, he's still fairly short and we didn't have the kind of coats and, and, you know, you know, like how the first 10, 20 feet of a field edge are, they're just briars and thorns. And, uh, so yeah, we, we I, I was like, all right, let's go in the timber. And I turn around and they're stuck in, in the thorns. Right. And <laughs> yeah. so I had to say, okay, well we can't go in there cause of the thorns and, uh, you know, next time. Right. Yeah. That's some, it can get gnarly in there. I didn't think about that yeah. with God. It's like, Anywhere you want to get to look for sheds, almost always you have to go through some serious prickers in our neck of the woods, at least. Yeah, same here. Iowa and Michigan is brutal, but uh, but I guess I guess this is probably isn't a bad place for us to wrap it up. Get to talking with our main guests about uh, trees and forestry and and all that kind of interesting stuff. And um, maybe in the next episode we'll finally have some sheds because I've had a horrible shed hunting year. Total two. What? How many do you have so far this year? I I only found two so far this year. Okay. Well, I'm actually I'm actually ahead of you then. I found, um, I found five total. Nice. Nothing nothing remotely large or nice, but um, but five sheds. Two of which were super old. Two were really small, and one was a little four point side. Um, but uh, I am still trying to trying to get that Montana shed hunting trip in on one of these next work trips I go on. So that might nice. that might bring the total up. But uh, but yeah, let's uh, let's plan catching up soon on some other topics and uh, finding a few antlers before then, huh? Sounds good, man. All right, let's take a quick break. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the sunshine state or any other destination on your fishing bucket list book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids with over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from planning your next one just got a whole lot easier download the fishing booker app on the google play or app store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today This episode is brought to you in part by O'Reilly Auto Parts, who are in the business of keeping your car on the road and also keeping you happy. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. I use the O'Reilly by me. It's right in downtown where I live. 
and the team there is super knowledgeable. When you got questions, they're happy to help you out. It's a great store to go into. The team at O'Reilly Auto Parts, they can test your battery for free in or out of your car. And don't ignore your check engine light. Ask for O'Reilly Veriscan today, a free diagnostic service exclusively at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Need your windshield wipers replaced? Brake light fixed, quick service, they'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop to get some help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in the store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'Reilly Auto, O-R-E-I-L-L-Y. O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. All right. I've got now with me Matt Ross and Tim Russell. And let's start with you, Matt. Uh, you're a repeat guest on the podcast. Always love getting to chat with you. Usually, um, I'm talking to you from the perspective of, of your main role, which I think is, is oh gosh, as, Associate Director of Conservation. Is that right? Pretty close. Assistant director Assistant. of conservation. <laughs> okay. So talking all things quality deer management, um, but I've never taken a deep dive with you on this topic of forestry, but I know you've got a background in it. Can you, can you hit us off here with a quick background as far as what your, what your history is with, with forestry in this specific topic? Yeah, my pleasure, Mark, and, and always like being on the show. So for thanks, uh, uh, you know, in the lead here for having me back, and also for including somebody else from QDMA. Um, and always love love talking about deer and deer hunting. So I started out very interested in wildlife because of deer hunting, and I know we've covered this in the past. But I went to school for wildlife uh, and really focused on deer um, when I was in graduate school in New Hampshire, um, I started uh, doing a little bit more with the forestry side of things. I I had a uh, a degree in wildlife, but I taught a forestry class, several forestry class related to my my thesis because of what I was uh, researching. And um, at one point when I graduated, I uh, was looking for a job. And my initial job right out of graduate school was working for a consulting company um, in New Hampshire, covered New Hampshire and Maine. um, And most of what that company did was forestry work, but I was hired as the wildlife biologist on staff to to write prescriptions into the the management plans uh, related to to wildlife uh, type of goals. And I was there for for quite a uh, bit of time, long enough that um, I had a lot of experience working with landowners and loggers and and uh, towns for doing the management on side of things, and uh, eventually started to go more on the forestry side in terms of what the company was having me do. And by the time I was done working there, uh, I had become licensed as a forester. Uh, I was marking timber. Um, I was working with crews on actual silvicultural prescriptions along with the wildlife side of things. And uh, that was really kind of a trial by fire for me from the wildlife side of things where I really was interested in deer and deer management and wildlife. And I realized on all of the properties that I had worked on while I was there at the consulting company that uh, forestry, mostly because that part of the world is dominated by forest. Maine and New Hampshire is the most forested states in the country by landmass. 
um, really was driving wildlife populations, what foresters did. So uh, I really loved it and uh, did a lot in the forestry community and then eventually left that job and found myself at QDMA. So uh, I am licensed as a forester and have done a lot of forestry prescriptions, even though I was driven by deer to, to begin with. Okay, and so so Tim, what about you? What's what's your story? So uh, I grew up spending a lot of time in the out of doors, and uh, didn't have the opportunity to hunt when I was younger, which is something that uh, has changed now that I'm adult. Now that I'm an adult, and uh, something I'm very happy about. Uh, I I loved being outdoors. I knew I wanted to work outdoors, and so uh, I went to school in in Syracuse to uh, to SUNY ESF to study forestry, where I got my degree in forest resources management. Uh, after school, I spent uh, a few years working for a couple of different forestry consulting firms, doing timber inventories, uh, assisting with forest management plans, uh, that sort of thing. And uh, one day I saw a, a job posting come up that was uh, for QDMA, and they were looking to hire somebody to work on the Young Forest Initiative. Uh, in the, the northeastern United States and much of the United States, we don't have a lot of young forest cover uh, as we used to. And uh, so there's sort of an effort to, to get landowners uh, involved in creating and maintaining and enhancing young forest on their properties to benefit wildlife, which seemed like something that uh, I really wanted to do and that I'd be able to help with. So uh, uh, today I'm, I'm happily with QDMA. So what does that entail? How are you actually going about encouraging and partnering with folks to, to encourage that young forest type habitat? Sure. Well, part of it's uh, outreach to, to get people aware um, and we have uh, uh, partnerships uh, with other conservation organizations, including National Wild Turkey Federation and Rough Grouse Society and National Audubon Society. Um, and there are several different, uh, different groups working under the umbrella of the, the Young Forest Initiative, including our state's Department of Environmental Conservation. Uh, but there is uh, funding through the Natural Resources Conservation Service through their Environmental Quality Incentives Program, EQIP. Uh, that a lot, uh, a lot of folks are probably familiar with, uh, where they, they've got some funding put aside just to, uh, just to help fund those sorts of projects uh, that can uh, you know, range from uh, uh, heavy-density cuttings uh, to, to get young forests growing in to invasive plant control to make sure that plants we don't want uh, don't come to, to overtake some of these sites. Uh, so uh, it's, uh, there are a lot of different partners in this effort, and... Uh, Certainly, there are a lot of benefits to, to landowners who are interested in, in joining in. <laughs> I definitely want to dive in further into that a little bit later. And and you mentioned some of the government programs, assistance programs. That's something I'm definitely curious about, too. But probably before we go down that rabbit hole, um, I want to just kind of lay a foundation here for folks. Um, and maybe, Matt, maybe you want to tackle this first. Uh, why does this matter? Why does why does forestry matter for deer hunters? And maybe, maybe even taking it one step back further. What is forestry, and then why does this matter for for deer hunters? Sure, uh, yeah, I'm happy to to jump into that. That's a big topic, but uh, um, forestry cl- cl- is, notes, is uh, give me your give me like your, yeah. like your elevator pitch. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, f- forest management is is a way or that we as natural resource managers, landowners, and just the public uh, managing private and public lands can steer the direction of and the health of a forest. Um, so it's 
based on making decisions on how many trees to either keep or leave, uh, uh, keep or remove, um, how much sunlight to let in. It's a very predictable thing, uh, forest, forest management. You can actually predict what will show up. Now, Mark, do you have, you and your wife have a garden? You guys uh, garden at all? Yeah, we didn't pull it off this last year, but usually we have a garden. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure I know why. So, uh, yeah, gard- gardeners are everywhere, right? And it takes time. Uh, that's what a forest takes. It, it needs time. And, and to get a good crop in your garden, or even a farmer would need, you need to make sure that things are well-spaced, right? So if you were to go out to the store this spring and wanted to put – um, you know, tomatoes, peppers, all that stuff in your garden, and you bought all those, and in the, instead of putting it in the same square footage as you normally do, you just lumped everything together and it was really close together, the the end result would not be the same as if you gave everything in the space and the nutrients that it needs. A forest is basically a garden. It's a big crop. And as long as you can give good space uh, to the trees so that they can grow and grow straight, especially if you're if you're interested in timber management, getting nice straight trees to grow, and the species that show up, um, that's also very predictable through succession. Um, you can, although it's a very long timeline and it's hard to uh, to see that if you're not trained in it. And one of the things I was just talking about a few minutes ago was my prior experience, and Tim has it as well is uh, being able to go on properties that have been managed for 10, 50, 100 years. That's a pretty interesting thing to have as a manager um, because it lets you kind of look back in time and say, okay, I know what the managers of this property did that time period ago and say, all right, well, now this is what's growing here. So forestry is that taking those things of time and and the spacing of the different trees and altering it so that you can kind of shift it to what you want to grow there. Now, for deer hunters, why is that interesting uh, and and important? Um, For most deer hunters, obviously you get into parts of the Great Plains and and even parts of the West uh, where there isn't much of a forest component, but for most deer populations, particularly whitetail populations, they live where forests grow. They might not be a dominant part of the, the uh, landscape, but for most parts of where whitetails are, uh, forests are growing. And honestly, they spend a lot of time, as we all know as deer hunters, in where fo- trees are. They could be, you can call them what you want, in areas where there's a lot of ag, you know, ravines or coolies or creek beds where trees are growing and shrubs are growing, deer bed in there. They certainly eat a lot of stuff in there. We can talk a little bit about, you know, what they access, but hunters know that's where you're going, right? That's where bedding cover typically can be found where forests are. And in much of the east, where forest is the dominant um, part of the landscape, uh, certainly deer rely on that for everything, where ag is not a, a major thing. So, by managing forests, we really manage deer health, deer populations, um, and that's kind of what I alluded to earlier is as this kid coming out of grad school, I really had driven myself and what I wanted to go for school as wildlife specific and deer specific. I realized once I was walking around these woodlots that foresters were really the ones that were shaping, at least in New England, you know, what deer populations uh, were 
uh, looking like. Yes, obviously land managers and deer managers and the, the state regulates harvest, and that's a big part of it. Uh, it's a huge part of it. But on the habitat side, uh, you're really missing out if you're not managing forests for deer, um, particularly because they, it makes up such a large component of where they live. Even in areas where it's dominated by ag, they spend a lot of time where there's cover, and trees are typically it. If you can manage that uh, to promote good deer populations where they're getting a lot of food, where they find cover, you can really influence uh, a lot of things with deer, deer through forestry. So that's why it's important. Now, what about for someone who doesn't actually have the ability to implement changes on a property of their own? What if there's someone listening who is just a deer hunter who hunts maybe some public land, maybe they hunt some private by permission? Are there concepts related to this topic that are helpful to understand for any hunter that might be able, you know, be able applied anywhere? Yeah, I'll, I'll touch on that. And, and I think, yes, absolutely. Um, and Tim, feel free to chime in after, uh, you know. But I think most, again, we're a whitetail organization, uh, most whitetail hunting is happening on private land. Uh, uh, you know, so if you don't own land, uh, most whitetail hunters have access to land that's privately owned. Yes, there's a lot of public land whitetail hunting going on out there, and we should talk about that. But for the people that don't own land, I, I would venture a guess just based on all the statistics out there that most of them have permission on land that's privately owned. Um, so that is important. Um, for them, for those, even if you don't own those pieces of ground, uh, because you could do it a couple ways. If that person that owns the land is willing to let you, you know, learn or do some habitat management, um, you can certainly implement some of the stuff we're talking about. You can actually be uh, knowledgeable about where to find deer on places that are either publicly owned or uh, privately owned just based on forestry because obviously it influences greatly how deer move um, and where they're going to be based on recent operations. If there's a lot of forestry happening where trees are being removed, it'll influence where deer are bedding and eating. Um, So you need to be able to read and predict that just as a deer hunter. Um, And as well as, you know, on other other, uh, examples, if you're hunting public land, um, being able to do the same thing. And Tim, feel free to, to, to jump in. Sure, absolutely. Uh, you know, whether forests are being managed for timber production or for wildlife or not at all is going to have an influence uh, one way or the other uh, on those wildlife, of course, including whitetails. And uh, for people who are near and, and hunt on public land, I would say look at what resources are available as far as information. If you can get your hands on the management plan for the state or the federal forest that you live near and be able to say, hey, look, this is where a clear cut took place in the recent past that there will be good browse in there, or you know, maybe even more recently, maybe in the past month or so that you see a schedule that there's going to be a thinning, and now you know that when you're going out in the woods to hunt, there's going to be a bunch of treetops on the ground in that stand, which can be highly attractive to deer. That That's very valuable information. Uh, apart from that, uh, even those of us who think of ourselves as, as not owning land are, are part owners of hundreds of millions of acres of land as, as U.S. citizens, and uh, so it's definitely our duty to, uh, to pay attention to what's happening on those lands and, and make our desires known that, uh, you know, if, if that's the way that we would like to see the property managed and those, that's what we would like to see as far as the, the benefits that we reap off of those uh, public lands, then uh, it's uh, incumbent upon us to communicate that to the, 
to the government officials who are in charge of making these decisions and, and how those lands are going to be managed. Yeah, that's a great point. There are ways, correct me if I'm wrong, Tim, but there are ways that we as the public can influence some of the management that happens on these places, right? I, I know, for example, there have there have been some debates in certain parts of the United States around you know managed forests versus unmanaged, and, and some groups want to keep it untouched, um, while other groups are saying, hey, there's a value to some management here. Um, that's probably uh, an, uh, an instance where we might be able to you know, be p- participants within those community meetings or comment gathering sessions um, and speak to like the, the, the benefits of that kind of practice, right? Is that correct? Absolutely. And uh, myself being in New York State, where I've spent uh, all of my life and most of my career, uh, we actually have very little federal land, but we have a lot of state land that's managed by our Department of Environmental Conservation. And as they prepare management plans, they do hold public meetings where uh, I've had the opportunity to show up and, you know, read the management plan before the meeting and come to the meeting and uh, ask questions and and give suggestions and, uh, you know, sort of discuss with the group what it is we'd like to see off of that property before they make those final decisions. That's great. Okay, so... So that that'll makes a lot of sense. It's good to know that there are some ways that we can influence forestry policy, you know, even in situations where we don't own land, because like you said, Tim, we are all public landowners. I think that's a great point. Um, now, throughout the first, you know, 15 minutes or so I've been talking about here, both of you guys have mentioned a handful of different types of habitat and a handful of different types of ways of managing habitat. Um Maybe maybe it'd be helpful to understand a little bit about what deer need from habitat and in relation to forest. Um, Matt, could you speak to this maybe to kick us off a little bit on you know why different levels of forest habit or different ages of forest habitat or, or different management practices why that's beneficial to deer from from a from the standpoint of what they need biologically? Sure. Uh, yeah. Happy to. So. Uh, well, deer really can survive in a lot of different places. We all know that, right? I mean, they, you can find them in suburban areas where there's uh, trees that have never been cut to places that have been heavily cut. So in terms of their need, they're very adaptable. They can live in a lot of different places. Um, you know, what, what is ideal um, is places where within uh, deer's home range, the space they use uh, in a year, they can find all, all the things that they need, right? So uh, what what they typically will do on a daily basis, it changes seasonally, is they are going, they're, they're prey animals and they're ruminants, so we all know that. And because of that, what they do is they spend most of daylight in most cases, this is not everywhere, um, it's been shown through some research, but in most cases, deer will bed during the day, um, during daylight hours, and they're known as, fancy term crepuscular, which means they're up and uh, moving around dawn and dusk. Um, So that's why we see deer uh, and most hunters will try to get out a few hours before dark um, because that's when they're going to see them or they get out there for their morning hunt before the sun comes up and you see deer movement those first few hours of daylight. Um, So they bed during the day. They will walk to a food source or or will try to find a place to eat, um, and that's when they're most active. And then during the middle of the night, yes, they are active and more so than they are during the middle of the day, um, but they are going to bed down again. So knowing that, and then over the year, it's generally the same pattern, although during the breeding season, there's no more chaos in what they do. 
and their home ranges definitely expand. They're much larger because they're seeking breeding opportunities. You want within a home range of where deer live to have cover and food. Um, if you had basically a dichotomy of a hundred, you know, hundred acre block of land and food was in one place and a 50% of it across, you know, the line right down the middle and there was cover on the other side, you would be supporting less deer than if you had that same hundred acres and you had it really diverse where cover and food was interspersed with a good mix of all of these different things. Um, so you can almost picture it almost like a jigsaw puzzle looking down. Um, you know, if you're on an aerial, uh, like an Onyx or Google Earth or Hunter or something like that, and you're looking down in those environments where there's a nice mix of food and cover, you will support more deer and have more uh, opportunities to manage deer than you would in a place that's uh, less diverse. So, from a forestry perspective, um, it's almost better to start with a blank slate with a property that has, uh, you know, almost 100% forest or even better, something that's got very little forest and a lot of open space where you could start creating um, a place that's diverse. And the reason I say that is because deer tend to need cover from, they're very short animals. I mean, they're, you know, four feet, five feet tall. Um, you know, so from that six foot mark down, you need a lot of thick cover and food so they can reach it. And a lot of that is found early in the successional phase. So succession is that predictable way that we can manage plants. And Tim mentioned it earlier. I talked about it a little earlier in terms of forestry is, is predicting what's going to grow there. And succession is that marching forward of how those different plant communities show up. And if you can start with a blank slate, 100 acres of field, you know, for example, and start letting that come back into uh, a plant community that's no longer young grasses and it started getting shrubs and small trees, as Tim was talking about earlier with young forests, you can support more deer than if it's wide open grass or if it's a forest that's so old that it's canopied out and you have shade on the, on the ground. So what you want to do from a timber perspective in terms of managing for financial gains and, and on the side of trying to make that forest work force, uh, for you financially can be tweaked a little bit on the deer manager's brain by trying to make it more diverse and offer more uh, young cover through, through forest management practices. Um, so that's kind of the, the big picture. And we do that through a couple broad brush techniques that foresters use of either trying to manage a, a landscape in a lot of young trees um, or kind of a mix of young and old. And those we can get into some of that terminology if you'd like, but that's the thought process. So if I was to be hired or, you know, prior to working for QDMA, if somebody had called the consulting company I used to work for and said, hey, I'm really interested in deer hunting. Um, how can I manage this for deer? The way you would manage that could would be different than if that person had said, hey, I'm really interested in, man, in growing big trees so I can, um, you know, get a revenue off this for my kids or my grandkids. You can do both, but it, you definitely have to change what you're doing um, and the prescriptions and how it's done, how the property is, is treated would be different from the deer manager's uh, point of view. Okay. So, so talk us through then that scenario. Let's say I'm a landowner. I have uh, 
a chunk of property that has some timber on it. Maybe I've got some diversity in what I've got. Um, can you walk me through, let's say, let's say you were still working as a forester. And then Tim, I'd love you to hop in here too, in, in your role that you're in right now. Um, you know, let's say the, the two of you were going to show up my hunting property and I said, hey, I want to understand what I need to do here to improve the habitat, um, implement some kind of forest management. Can you kind of talk me through what your initial questions would be, what that initial process would look like? Um, what would what would I be in for during that first kind of meeting and, and, and kind of subsequently? Well, Tim does that on a on almost on a daily basis, but he meets with landowners all the time uh, through the program we have here that he mentioned earlier. So, Tim, why don't you take take a stab at it? I'll, I don't want to steal your thunder because you that is part of your your job description. Sure, like uh, I mean, with any any form of forest management, uh, you know, you have that discussion with the landowner. Um, the, the initial discussion, a really good thing to find out, is about the history of the property how long they've had it, if it's been logged in the recent past, if they know the land has been treated a certain way that might uh, allow us to make inferences uh, about uh, what we'll find when we get out there. Probably the most important discussion to have is is about the objective uh, and, and what things, uh, you know, it might be one objective. Sometimes you meet with a person who, who really just wants that to be a hunting property or they have a multitude of objectives that might rank uh, differently. And so you start with that objective. Uh, you do uh, um, you do an assessment of uh, of the property to basically uh, get some information about what what the forest looks like now, what the conditions are like currently, and then you work within your your knowledge and skill set to try and come up with a, a series of treatments which will sort of, uh, as Matt alluded to, drive or steer that forest ecosystem in a direction that better meets those objectives. Uh, which can consist of a lot of different things, oftentimes uh, cutting trees uh, and oftentimes uh, using herbicides to control plants which are not desirable. Uh, and, of course, hand-in-hand hand with that is uh, herd management to make sure that uh, you don't have deer uh, that are, are causing uh, damage to your, your potential crop for what you're trying to grow. Uh, so, I mean, that's, that's basically the, the essence of it. Um, okay. Would you... Yeah, and- and you you also want to know like what limitations are there. I mean, certainly you have to walk the property with the person. It's interesting those conversations are com- sometimes the landowner or the person that's calling, you know, or even emailing us. We get these questions all the time. Uh, I, uh, we just did put a blog up about the, you know that kind of uh, interaction on our website not that long ago, um, where the landowner has has interest but it sometimes it's hard for them to even define it themselves so it's those conversations that back and forth of okay you know what do you use the property for um you know what would you like to not happen what would scare you where whoever that manager is that's meeting them almost has to massage the discussion to the point where you know just trying to get out of them what they're looking for and then um offer them a draft plan and a list of objectives to see if that actually is what they're looking for. I'll say one thing too, as well, is it's really an interesting opportunity to, as I mentioned, these things are happening um, and they influence deer movement. But one of the things I thought was super powerful and one of those kind of like aha moments for me was how we have the ability to change that. Um, You know, looking at a forest, many deer hunters, uh, will go out, you know, it doesn't matter, p- private or public lands, and they start scouting for deer sign, right? You're going to look where you can find rub lines and beds 
um, find sheds on the ground this time of year in the next couple of weeks, um, plant food plots, you know, obviously to try to steer that a little bit. But you can think big picture and start really thinking, okay, if you have access and the ability to do this on private land, is start uh, influencing that in a big way by saying, okay, if I know deer like these certain conditions, and I know the wind direction is a certain, you know, predominant wind direction is coming across this property a certain way, and I know my access is only uh, these, you know, from the from the main road, if it's a place where you don't have a house or cabin, I have to walk in from this direction. You can start planning that out in advance and saying, I want to steer where deer go. Um, and, you know, it's not a, a bulletproof thing like anything, but you can really heavily influence deer movement across the landscape by making some of these decisions at the 30,000 foot scale. Now, so for the people that are listening that don't own property and don't have those decisions, that's where you fall into what Tim mentioned earlier is on lands you don't control, but you uh, have access to either through permission or if it's public land, you can start making those decisions and figure out where to scout and where to hunt from the air. Even though you don't have the control over it, you can look at things like that. Um, even on properties that you don't have access to, if there's land near you that's privately owned that you don't have permission to get on, all you need to do is get on an aerial, go back a couple of years. There's all different ways that you can kind of rewind time on those aerials and see what it looks like five years or uh, man, even 50 years ago, you can go into some of the soil and water conservation districts and get old aerials and see what was done to that property that, you, that is right next door that you've never stepped foot on and kind of make a decision of, oh, okay, I think I know why deer are doing that. It really lends itself to the to the deer hunter that's trying to strategize making those decisions through forestry and, and how that's been treated. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I had a, a very similar example pop up in my own life on our uh, on our northern Michigan deer camp up there about two years ago, maybe three years ago, two or three years ago. Um, showed up there one year, I think late summer, and saw that the neighbor had just done a really aggressive cut. Not quite a clear cut, but a but a very aggressive, a selective cut, I guess you'd call it. Um, and it just dramatically changed like a 20 acre section right next to our property. And right away I was like, okay, well this is going to change a lot of things because what used to be just a big, thick, mature timber stand now is all of a sudden it's probably going to be really good bedding. It's probably going to be a whole lot of good food here for a while too. Um, so the past few years we've started placing cameras along that edge of our property and started paying attention to it more um, because you could just tell like when you see that kind of habitat change, it's going to probably be positive for deer activity. Um, even as you said, Matt, if it's not on your own property, you can still take advantage of it to a degree. And um, interestingly, yeah. our shared friend, Furter, almost killed a nice buck coming into that section. He was right near, kind of on our side, close to that clear-cut area, and the, the buck was heading that way, probably to check it for does, and uh, he almost got shot. So, it's That's a, cool. He, he didn't tell me that story. I'll have to find out why, why I didn't hear all about it. Yeah, just just didn't quite have enough time to get on him before he turned and heart started heading directly away from him. But um, yeah, but yeah, I, I'll say one other thing too is like you know on the hunting side of it is we all have that thing in the back of our brain you know where you're walking into an area and all of a sudden it feels like deery right you know you're like ooh I, I feel like I could jump a deer right now um, that you control that too. You can make those decisions from the air and say, I would like that feeling to be over here on this part of the property. And that's 
land management. And it doesn't necessarily always have to be forestry. Um, you can make those decisions by just letting a field go and let it grow back. But that is what we're talking about here. Um, one thing you mentioned earlier is uh, you said a selective cut. And I, I talked a little bit about those broad brush treatments. Generally, for terminology, uh, if you're talking to a forester, if you know the, the property you have access to, uh, foresters have been on it and they're starting to work with that um, through some of that terminology. And Tim mentioned earlier, um, kind of one way to regenerate a forest. There's two big, I guess, camps of, of forestry. The way we ways we manage is even age management and uneven age management. And even age management is where you want to create one whole new age class of trees coming up. And that would be like a clear cut, as you were just talking about on that property up in Michigan. There's other ways to do even age management. Um, what you may have been looking at was a sea tree cut or a shelter wood cut. They're basically big, massive changes where you remove almost the entire overstory, if not the whole thing. Sea tree and, and uh, shelter wood cuts are where you're leaving a little bit left uh, for a residual stand, but the eventual plan is to get a new crop of trees coming up, and you do that in a block fashion where you're saying, okay, this block is what I want to regenerate, and if we create a environment where there's a lot of sun and no overstory, very few overstory trees, you'll get a lot of sun-loving trees to come in there, things like aspen, light-seeded species like white pine. Well, I'm listing stuff in the Northeast, but it doesn't matter where you are the things that will pioneer site is what shows up. Uh, alternatively, if you want to do uh, the type of management that's uneven age management where you're removing some, most people call it select cut or selective cut, where you're removing some of the trees but leaving a portion of them, you can regenerate some new trees in there, but the trees that generally will grow back in that environment like shade or a little bit of sun, not a lot of sun. And that's through that predictability that I mentioned earlier. If you want to influence what trees grow back, you do that through those two major camps in the forester's mind. They say, okay, I need this to happen. The landowner or the landowner or deer hunter that's talking to me wants deer to bed over there. Here are things that we need to do. Now, the timeline on both of those of what deer will use are different. The reason I'm mentioning that is you were talking about that Michigan neighbor, uh, the northern Michigan neighbor. That's probably going to be, uh, in the in the long term, kind of short-lived, although they did that cut that, you know, what you felt like was an aggressive or, you know, you described as an aggressive thing. They removed a lot of trees. Deer, deer use in there, you can expect to be very high for you know, a handful of years, right? But at some point, that stuff will get above a deer's reach. Shade will show back up. It's usually around the seven or eight-year eight, eight mark. And then deer use starts to decline, um, because they don't have access to those trees that are within reach or have lots of berries and fruits. The buds are no longer reach. And that's where you can start making those predictions. Um, again, big term, big picture, long term from the sky of how deer will deer use will change. So I will bet you whatever year that was done on your neighbor's property, you got about seven or eight years of really hot activity. And then all of a sudden you're going to start seeing a decline. Um, use that to your advantage. You could plan around it. You know, those are things that a deer hunter, even if you don't own the land next to you, you want to know that stuff. Yeah. So, so how do you determine what the right option is between an, an even age class management or, um, 
or uneven. I'm, I'm blanking on the terminology you just said two seconds ago. Um, but how do you determine what the right route is to go between those two different camps of managing a piece of timber? Um, I imagine it probably depends partly on your goals, but can you elaborate a little bit, Matt, for Tim? I'll say it definitely depends on the goals. A lot of it is based also on what Tim mentioned before is walking the property and getting a, a, you know, a current status, what's out there, you know, what, what trees are there now, um, because that will play a large role in it. Um, commercially, if there's trees that you can't take out of there that'll pay for it, then you're, you're looking like a, it's a cost operation. And most people uh, don't have the ability to pay to have something like that done. You want the, the forest operation to pay for itself. Um, if you possibly can. So, you know, the current conditions part of it, also the ground really, really you know, what, what the soils are like, um, moisture level, um, all of that stuff will play a part too, because sometimes logistically, if it's really wet, you can't go in there any time of year, or you got to wait till it, it's frozen if you're in the North. Um, and, and all of the things that are kind of fall under the, the logistics uh, tab, you know, of like what, what you can do and what you can get away with. So it's, there's a lot of nuances, and that's why the answer is typically it depends. It really depends on walking the property, getting a sense of what it feels like, and, you know, I'll, I'll say a nod for any anybody listening, you know, this is why foresters are important. There's a lot of this, uh, folks out there that use foresters. Um, they aren't just a middle, middle man or woman that's there to, you know, help along with the process, but also get their quote unquote cut. Um, a lot of times you need somebody that's trained in those decision-making. There's a lot of great loggers out there. I still have a lot of great friends that are loggers. Um, folks that go directly with loggers can get a similar result, but you want somebody that's trained in silviculture, the science and art of managing forest to make some of those decisions. And, and that's part of the, the thought process too, is working with somebody that's trained. They have, they went to school for it. Um, and it's certainly important. Uh, Tim, you know, feel free to chime in though about like going on to a property. How do you decide um, whether you're going to do full on even age management, uneven age management, or what Mark, you originally had asked us to be on the call of uh, is timber stand improvement. And that's a whole camp in itself and of this intermediate stage where the trees are not quite commercial. Uh, they're not ready to be cut, but you can still do some things. I'll let Tim kind of, take the ball from there yeah if you could define some of that too that'd be helpful too tim absolutely well you know when we have uh, an uneven state an, an uneven age stand that's being managed typically using that selection method that matt had mentioned uh, we're trying to leave you know at the stand level in that individual stand a similar area with trees of, of different age in each age class trees of different ages that are all mixed up in the same stand um, because of our history uh, at least in New York and a lot of the Northeast, so much of our forest has reverted from abandoned agricultural land that you know, the vast majority of the forests that we're managing are even age. Um, and so it, it sort of becomes easier to continue to, to follow that system. Uh, it takes a tremendously long time, whether you're start, starting from the ground or starting from an older even age forest to convert to an uneven age forest where you have trees of lots of lots of different age classes there are a few ways to do it where you might come in with a mosaic of very small gaps that you're creating over time or starting with a gap that you're expanding over time but that's a very long process to go from you know an even age stand to an uneven age stand whereas in any of these cases if we go in and we do a very heavy cut like a, a shelter wood or a, a seed tree or a, a clear cut you know 
it, it isn't as difficult to regenerate the stand and now have an even age stand. That can basically that conversion can take place in a single treatment. Um, uh, as far as you know, managing those as as they go forward. I mean, they're they're a little bit different, um, and, and this can this can influence which one is preferable because. With the even age stand, you're you're regenerating that stand, getting a new age class, a new cohort, cohort of trees coming up. Um, as they approach rotation age, typically you have intermediate uh, treatments like uh, timber stand improvement to reduce the crowding and and leave behind the best individuals. Um, and then ultimately you're regenerating the stand. Whereas in that uneven age stand, each entry you're sort of doing both a thinning and a regeneration treatment because you're trying to keep trees of all different ages throughout that entire stand. So you've got seedlings and saplings and pole timber and small saw timber and large saw timber sized trees. Um, and this can pose a different obstacle, um, particularly when you get into areas like much of New York has where, where deer can be overpopulated to the point that they're, they're browsing down um, all the regen you want. In an even age scenario, uh, you basically have a window of time where you need to get trees regenerated and then up over the heads of the deer where they can reach those trees and not have to worry about it for another 80 years. Whereas in an uneven age setting, you need to have regeneration constantly and uh, having you know even a, a period of time, in time for a few years where the deer browse is so heavy that you can't get that regeneration established, that can pose a problem that is going to continue to be a problem because there's a gap in that age structure that will continue on through time. Uh, the other thing we think about a lot as far as trying to, you know, when we have them manage uneven age stands uh, in, in New York and many other places that have beech bark disease, as Matt mentioned, uh, that, that uneven age management um, often favors uh, shade-tolerant species uh, because they're growing under several other tiers of, of vegetation of different heights, uh, it could be more difficult for those um, those shade intolerant or, or sun loving species to come in. And uh, in, in New York and, and many other places, we have this issue with uh, with beech that uh, can come to dominate in those cases because beech is so tolerant of shade. So it definitely poses some different uh, obstacles managing under one versus the other. Is there any is there any kind of blanket statement you could apply to either even or uneven management as far as a benefit or 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 negative to either one as far as managing from a deer hunting perspective? Because I'm imagining if I were to just like guess off the top of my head, I see okay a clear cut that to kind of practice an even management practice right there. That seems like a, a downside to that would be that it would be at least immediately after that clear cut's made. You, you've lost a lot of cover in the short term, and you might have changed deer behavior in the short term, possibly negatively, depending on when that cut's made, how close it might be to hunting season. So that's something like, whoa, that's a catastrophic change. That's one downside. But then the upside might be that a year or two, three years from now, then you've got this this great big, large area of, of beneficial habitat. Um, that's my novice guess on one possible upside downside of something like a clear cut. Could you speak to or point out any other possible benefits or, or downsides to either one of those um, that someone might want to think about when considering one or the other? Yeah, I, I'll jump in. I, I think they both have their place. And if the land lends itself, the, the space lends itself, I like both techniques for deer hunting. Um, you know, in an ideal situation, you know, clear cuts don't have to be 
although they're nice to have, you know, larger five, 10 acres, uh, or even 10 to 20 acres or, or larger recommended, you know, these blocks of two to five acres can be created to, to get, especially if you get the right slope where the sun's coming down, it's the, you know, a South facing slope to get a lot of sun in those places. Um, I like to see both even and uneven age management for deer hunting. And it goes back to that sculpting of deer movement where you can, you can influence how deer will bed. You get the forest to respond the way you want as well, but you can influence how deer will bed and move. If you can picture again, a block of landmark where you have, um, let's say just as an extreme, right? The wind is out of the West. I'm going to give you an extreme example. And on the west side of that 100 acres, you put a linear five-acre clear cut that takes up the whole west boundary, right? Um, you can expect within a couple of years the deer to be bedding on that west cover. And then what if right in the center of that block um, you did, um, going from a you know east-west pattern, you did a whole bunch of uneven age management um, coming from that, that clear cut uh, towards a food source, which is all the way over on the east side of the property. But on the north and on the south end of your block, you didn't do much. There's just open canopy in there or, you know, a closed canopy, not much on the ground growing. You would predict that deer would probably come out of that clear cut. They'd be bedding in there, would follow that uneven aged uh, management kind of swath where there's some cover growing in the, in the understory to your food source. Um, that's an extreme example. But what I'm saying there is that's an example of having both and kind of, um, for lack of a better term, I mean, others have used it out there, deerscaping the property where you can influence where deer are bedding. Sure, in about eight years or nine years, that clear cut's no longer going to be useful for deer. Um, not necessarily useful, but it's not going to have the bedding cover holding capacity than it did in the first couple of years. Um, and you wanted some kind of time limits on that. I can tell you, you know, doing those heavy, uh, even age management techniques, you're going to see a, a hundredfold increase in browse coming in immediately in the first one to five years. You'll see in excess of over a thousand pounds of food per acre. You're going to get a flush of soft mass because a lot of those things like raspberries uh, and other uh, soft mass bearing shrubs and small trees will show up. That's where they, they grow. Um, but again, you're going to all, it's short lived. It's going to kind of disappear. Whereas in the environment where you're doing the uneven age management, you can expect, especially if you're going in and penetrating that area and just doing a little bit every seven to 10 years, you're always going to have cover coming up and always having cover coming up. So from a deer hunter's perspective, they're both good if you have the space for it. Um, you know, in that extreme example, I just told you after about 10 years, that western boundary is not going to be holding deer the way it it, it was, um, you know, until you can go in there and do something else with it. So now you got to plan accordingly, and that's really what a forest and uh, wildlife management plan combined can do for you if you integrate those two goals, your deer hunting or your wildlife-specific goals, with timber management or forestry. You can start influencing some of those things and having decisions where you might not do uh, as large of a clear cut or even age management in year one, you might do just that Northwest boundary. And then in 10 years, go down and do the North, you know, Southwest boundary. And then 
move it into a different quadrant where you're moving that around where deer are going. That's an ideal thing where you're always going through a rotation, I use that word, of doing something there every couple of years to keep deer cover and food low and deer use on your property high. Um, it requires space to do that for private landowners that have small land holdings. One of the best ways you can do that, and I didn't even plan on talking about this, but it just makes sense, is through a cooperative. And I know they're huge in Michigan, and they're big in New York, too. Is I've seen Forrester's firsthand example uh, where you might not own that much land if you are a private landowner, um, but you can plan a forest operation with multiple landowners involved through a cooperative where that forester and the logging crew will love it because it's economy of scale where they might come in and let, they might have to create a couple different landings to access the, the wood, but at least it's working cohesively as one big plan where you might have, you know, five or 10 landowners together that actually makes it worth the operation. And then you can start influencing the same stuff we're talking about through forestry. So cooperatives, although they have a lot of benefits in a lot of different ways, a lot of folks don't think it through with the forestry side of it. But I've seen that firsthand example, I'm sure Tim as well, where one forester is hired by basically every landowner and they bring a crew and they just treat as much acreage as they possibly can uh, in a slot. In fact, my own cooperative, uh, there's a guy moving on uh, this weekend. Uh, a, a, a logger's moving in. He's going to be treating several different properties on, on the place I hunt on. Huh. That's a really interesting way of, of, of continuing to take that group approach and expand that beyond just harvest decisions, but also to management of habitat. That's a pretty cool way to do it. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. This episode is brought to you in part by O'Reilly Auto Parts, who are in the business of keeping your car on the road and also keeping you happy. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. I use the O'Reilly by me. It's right in downtown where I live. And the team there is super knowledgeable. When you got questions, they're happy to help you out. It's a great store to go into. The team at O'Reilly Auto Parts, they can test your battery for free in or out of your car. And don't ignore your check engine light. Ask for O'Reilly Veriscan today, a free diagnostic service exclusively at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Need your windshield wipers replaced? Brake light fixed? Quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop to get some help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in the store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'Reilly Auto, O-R-E-I-L-L-Y, O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. You were talking about kind of rotating different quadrants and, and creating different 
even necessarily mention this word, but you kind of alluded to it, you're creating different edges. Like you talked about how you've had that one example scenario where you had the, the clear-cut bedding area on the west side, and then you had this edge created by uneven management through the middle that then directed traffic towards that food source to the east. And as you were talking about that, I was thinking about, yeah, a lot of what we're doing here when we're managing timber is taking what might be a, a wide open monoculture, even age stand of timber that has no diversity to habitat, no edge within it. And now you're creating this edge, which as, as a lot of deer hunters know, edge is something that, that attracts deer, that deer you know, really relate to as far as movement, as far as the types of habitat they, they desire to be around for food and escape cover and whatnot. Um, and Tim, I read an article you wrote a while back about this, about the importance of edge and how it might be something to think about is, is you could achieve, I think your, your line was in there, that you could achieve creating edge on a habitat one bite at a time. Um, if you know what I'm talking about, could you, could you elaborate on, on what your concept was there that you, that you spoke about in that piece? Sure. Uh, and in that, that piece, uh, I was looking at, uh, something very much like what Matt was, uh, talking about just earlier, uh, as far as continuing to, to cut on the property so that, uh, you know, there's always something that's been freshly cut and always something that's been growing in. Uh, I think one of the examples I gave in that article, uh, it would be to expand a gap, particularly if somebody has a limited amount of, of space or of time and resources that they could create a patch cut and then continue to work off of that. Um, you know, uh, sometimes, you know, it would seem almost that, uh, that, that habitat management as, as far as deer go and uh, timber management can seem at odds because when we think about the things that deer need, you know, we're often talking about the things that come with that those earliest stages of succession, whether it's actual early succession with forbs coming in at the ground level or whether we're talking about young forest, whereas we think timber and we're thinking of an older forest that's yielding larger saw logs that seem to be opposite uh, objectives. Uh, and one of the best ways to, to manage for that when possible is to uh, create something of a, a rotation of a mosaic uh, what foresters sometimes uh, term regulation, uh, where over time, as you continue to cut similar areas, you eventually have this mosaic with plenty of edge, um, that, but where you also have a, a consistent amount of habitat of different age classes. It's always changing, it's always moving, but you've got uh, a stable uh, stable capacity there because you've always got this similar amount of, of recently regenerated forest that maybe has some early successional plants coming in and stands that are just a few years old that offer that cover, uh, and then mature stands, which you can uh, which you can, you know, tend in between. And that's also very good from a timber standpoint because now you're, over time, uh, getting consistent flows of, of timber from that. Um, and there are other things that you could do in those, those intermediate treatments that you might tweak things a little bit differently than you would do for timber management to, to make the conditions uh, better for deer and for deer hunting. Um, speaking of that, another thing you mentioned, I think it was in that piece or, or maybe another, when it came to these different cuts that you're making and how it might be able to benefit both wildlife and your timber management plan, one of the things to improve um, the capacity for wildlife use that you mentioned was the shape of the cuts and what the benefit might be of having an irregularly shaped cut versus just a circle or a square. And this is something I never thought about. I thought about a lot when it comes to food plots, the benefit of 
strategically planning the shape of your food plot. But when it came to, you know, improving timber habitat or bedding cover, I'd always kind of thought, oh, you just kind of make a block and you cut it all, or you do whatever kind of practices that you want to implement. Um, but can you speak to why you might want to be a little bit more thoughtful with the shapes? Sure. Oh, uh, well, for one, uh, you know, uh, different shapes of, of the, the same area are going to have different uh, perimeters, that is to say, different amounts of edge. Um, and beyond that, I, I think another thing I mentioned in that article is getting near the edges of those uh, patch cuts or clear cuts you're planning and actually feathering them so that rather than having a, a heavily cleared area meet a, a wall of timber, you've, uh, you've gradually thinned in that surrounding area, um, which... Uh, you know, can give you uh, basically the interspersion of those older and younger trees. And uh, as far as uh, deer and hunting goes, it can also give you a good place to, to hang a stand, uh, and, you know, have, a, have trees that you can uh, hang a stand on and, and be among some of that stuff that, that's coming up. Um, some of the more uh, important points of, of choosing the shape of a cut um, have to do with how much sunlight is reaching the ground. When you're planning a, a clear cut or a patch cut, there are a number of different things that are influencing how many hours of direct sunlight you're getting. You know, you want to think about the aspect. Are you on a north face or a south face? Um, not that there's anything you can do to influence that or, or to influence this, but um, your latitude is going to affect how much sunlight you're going to get in a cut of a given shape and, and slope position and all that. Um, and, of course, you know, a shape, the shape of the cut's going to influence that because, you know, uh, if you have a, a cut of a, a given area, you know, the, the shape uh, is going to influence how wide an opening you're creating. So if you're doing a linear cut, you might not get as much sunlight as you would in a cut of the same area that is closer to a, a circle or a square in shape. Uh, and, uh, you know, typically, as a rule of thumb, um, it, it, if you're trying to create a gap that's large enough to regenerate shade-tolerant uh, trees, you want to create a gap that's at least one times the width of the surrounding uh, tree heights. If you want to regenerate shade-intermediate trees, uh, you know, you look to create a gap that's one and a half times that total tree height of, of the surrounding trees. And if you want to create a gap that has enough direct sunlight for enough hours reaching the ground that you're going to get shade intolerant trees, which are really sun-loving species, you want that gap to be, you know, at least twice as high, as, at twice as wide as, as the surrounding trees are high. And that's just a rule of thumb, of course, because as I mentioned, there are a lot of, uh, a lot of factors um, such as slope position and latitude that are going to uh, affect how many hours of direct sunlight your, your cut is going to receive. Huh. You know, something I didn't that we didn't really touch on maybe quite enough, but that I'm thinking of as we go through all of this, through all of this, I'm thinking to myself, there's just a lot here, right? There's, there's a lot of nuance. There's a lot of detail. Um, and, and if I ever thought to myself of going out into my woods, if I had a, a block and trying to figure all this stuff out on my own, I would be very intimidated by it. And so <laughs> this leads me to the question of, and you, you kind of alluded to this a little bit, Matt, you touched on this a bit, but it seems like bringing in a forester is a, is a good option if you feel that way. Um, but how do you go about finding a forester? How do you go about getting someone like the right kind of forester? You did an article about this, Matt. Um, can you, can you just kind of give us a little bit more detail? If, if we're listening to this and we're like, Oh, holy smokes, I'm, I'm overwhelmed. How do I actually find the right person to help me with this and not just, you know, pick the first forester I see in the Google results? Sure. Yeah, that's funny. It's a, uh, an article that we just put on our website a couple of weeks ago that I had written. It was inspired because I had, a. Uh, 
uh, a member reached out to me through social media and said, uh, hey, I got a question for you. And it just sparked a thought because it was my uh, due date to write something. And it was like, this is something I get asked all the time. Um, and it honestly is. I was just talking to another colleague this morning about the exact same question. Um, one of our co-op guys in, in Missouri had a similar thing happen to him. Um, my advice is generally pretty simple is you want to find a forester that gets deer hunting and hopefully they're a deer hunter. Um, even better if you can find somebody that's a QDMA member, uh, or have worked with QDMA members if they're not one. And one way you can do that is we are obviously a, um, conservation organization. We have members and we have local branches all across the country. There's a map on our website. You can click on your home state or province and see if there's a branch near you, contact them. They have a, a contact information, uh, maybe even get involved with that branch. And, uh, you know, there's likely somebody there that's probably used a forester. Personal recommendation is always a great way uh, to find somebody. And particularly if you're talking to a fellow deer hunter that's into deer management, um, you're probably going to get a good referral. So that that's one way to do it. I talked about in that article, Another is uh, QDMA actually has a program to certify lands. It's called our land certification program, um, where we have inspectors listed. Many of them have forestry uh, backgrounds. A lot of them are foresters. Um, you can mine that list for folks uh, that are uh, listed on our website. Um, not all of them are foresters. Some of them have strictly wildlife background, but that's another opportunity. And you can also uh, enroll in the in that program and get your property certified. That's what they're there for. Um, you know, so there are, there are different ways, but generally you want to, if you find somebody that's as passionate about deer hunting as you are, um, they're, and they're trained in silviculture or forest management, they're likely going to get what we're talking about. And, um, you know, along the lines of sculpting, or you're talking about directional planning in terms of your habitat, it's okay to not treat every you know square foot of your property. In fact, if you want to, and I know Mark, you wrote something like this years ago for our mm-hmm. magazine about having those deer deserts, right? Yeah, you can not treat some of your property um, with the hope that it influences deer to not be there. I mean, that's that's certainly uh, important um, to think about uh, any time that you can manage a property, get good food and cover on the ground. Um, I wouldn't say go the on the extreme and manage only small parts i would actually go to the other direction of that continuum and try to manage most of your property most maximum food and cover on the food would be maximum benefit so if you want to see deer hit their their highest potential for antler size and body weights per age class you need lots of food and cover on the ground so to do that you need a lot of acreage treated so i wouldn't push the deer desert extreme to where you leave very little of your property managed um i would manage most of it but maybe leave little blocks here or there it might help in terms of deer movement um so for the person that's feeling a little bit uh, overwhelmed by the discussion the first thing would be to reach out to somebody um uh, to talk to a forester or somebody that's trained in it but you know in all honesty mark even with some of that um, and I'm a big proponent on working with licensed or certified foresters, trying to find somebody that's a professional. Um, you, there's still a lot you can do, whether if you're able to on land that you either own or have access to, and they'll let you treat some things. Um, you can do a lot of work. You get, you know this. You know, with a chainsaw, a squirt bottle, and influence what's there. The general idea of trying to influence 
growth at the ground level is you got to get sunlight to come in. I mean, that's the simplest rule. And it, by removing some of the canopy, if you can reduce that at least to that like 60, 65, 70% mark where 30% of the sky is open, uh, 30 to 40% of the sky is open, that's when you start influencing growth. It's that predictability that Tim and I have been talking about of what's going to grow back there is where you really need the professional advice to come in. Um, and then also you don't want to miss opportunities. Uh, you don't want to kill or cut down a tree that might be valuable because then you're just shooting yourself in the foot in terms of if the tree had value in it and you cut it down, um, you know, you're, you're taking that away from yourself. You basically are throwing money out the window, which we don't like to see. You should make that money. Your property grew it or your grandfather's or grandparents or parents' property grew it. Yeah. That's standing money there. You might as well utilize it. So that's another thing. And then obviously in the respect of having an operator in there where a forester comes in, um, most forestry operations don't have hired contractors. They work with subcontractors and, uh, those people could, folks that are logging, they come in, they have insurance, they're trained, you can treat way more acreage. You know, there's a lot of good that comes into paying somebody to come in and mark the timber, sell the timber for you. You make more money. I mean, I can go on and on about all that. Um, just based on, if you think of it this way, if you were to try to do it yourself and you wanted an outlet to sell that wood and you were just going around and trying to sell it, you know, in whatever means way you could, uh, when you work with a forester that has a lot of, um, a client base that's broad and is working with lots of landowners, the pure supply that they provide um, you know, mills and things like that is much, much, much greater than you would be able to do by yourself. And they can demand higher prices for it, you know, because they're supplying them with so much more wood. So you actually can make more money by, by doing that. It's one of my soapbox things that I like to talk about. So I'd say if you feel overwhelmed, you're not going to be paying to use somebody to give professional advice. There's a lot of free resources out there through your state wildlife, state agencies, through your state forestry agency, um, in some parts of the world, um, you know, you can even through, get advice through your cooperative extension service, uh, where I uh, was mentioning that I went to school in New Hampshire. There are county-based foresters. That, that is certainly the case. In some state wildlife agencies, they have private lands, uh, foresters, private lands, conservationists, and biologists. There are free resources out there for you. Uh, Tim is, is one. He's, he's in New York. Other, other uh, conservation organizations like ourselves have, have those resources. But if you ended up going with a consultant to come in and basically work for you, uh, they are going to work for you. And that means make you the most money if it's possible. So it certainly is a good way to do it. Um, and, and you know what? They can earmark projects that you can do for yourself um, and say, hey, listen, I marked every tree you need to get rid of, uh, either girdle and spray it or cut it down. And then you go out there and do the sweat equity. Um, you know, there, there's, there's certainly nuances of how you can do these things. You don't have to just hand everything over to somebody else. Yeah. And, and, and that was one of the questions I had was about the, the DIY option. If you wanted to, to kind of try to do a lot of this yourself, it sounds like there's still benefits to bringing in a consultant of some kind. Um, so I want to first better understand the free options. If I want to try to get some free help, does it sound like the, the, 
the first step is just contacting your state game agency and say, hey, do we have some kind of program within Michigan to help with this kind of thing? And then there'll be someone who can direct me around. Is, is that kind of how to start the looking for free help uh, process? I would always go with whatever the, the uh, government agency is that's in charge of forestry and or wildlife, because if they know, if you contacted your wildlife department, you know, they're all under the same roof in most places, but, um, and saying, hey, I'm interested in having some forestry advice, um, they're probably going to send you over to the forestry uh, side of things um, and vice versa. You know, a lot of times, though, getting back to that comment about, you know, I'm really interested in deer hunting. I think that's where that's born from. I'm not saying not to call free management advice. It certainly is there. Our taxpayer money pays for it. But a lot of times those folks are not maybe on the same um, sheet of music, I guess, because they might not be deer hunters. They went to forestry school. It, or it'd be a little bit of a long shot to try to find somebody that's really, really interested in deer hunting, um, where it's going to it's going to take some due diligence on the person that's asking. You got to ask a lot of questions, um, yeah. you know, and, and find a person that fits well with you. But there are certainly lots of free options, and not only is that, I mean, I know in your case in Michigan, there's there's some really good options just based on some friends I know through our organization um, that get deer hunting that are QDMA members. I mean, it's, it certainly exists just might do, take a little bit more flipping through the, the playbook to find somebody. Yeah. Now, what if we want to bring in uh, a forestry consultant that, that would be a paid situation? Uh, obviously, payments would be different depending on who and where and what. But is, can you give me any kind of ballpark or how cost is applied or anything? Just if I'm thinking about this, what am I thinking about to bring in someone like this? Is this like a 200 bucks for a day or is this like X percentage of the project we plan on doing? Or how does that work? There's all different ways that it, it can happen, uh, and I hate to say it, it depends, but it depends on what you're asking for. So if you're looking for a management plan, like to have them come in and write a plan for you with no operations in the woods, but basically give you a document, um, that typically is a cost, but there are definitely cost share options where you can get part of that paid off. There are definitely free options to get management plans written through different federal and state programs. Um if they're coming in to cut timber and there's commercial timber, typically the, an initial visit's not going to cost you anything. They, they're, they're getting to know you. You're going to get to know them. That, that is certainly uh, the most common thing is, hey, they want to find out what you need, what you're looking for, um, and then you know, vice versa. You're trying to figure out if they're the right fit for you. Um, sometimes it's a combination of not only writing a plan uh, but doing an inventory to figure what's out there eventually doing a commercial harvest. Sometimes that can all be wrapped up under one contract where uh, they are going to eventually cut some wood there and it can be paid for from the, from the sale, um, you know, to have a manager plan. There's also tax incentives uh, to get tax breaks on your property. And there's certainly a lot of ways to get plans there too. And Tim, feel free to jump in, but I mean, I, I'm trying to make it not as confusing, but it's hard to answer that question. Unfortunately, it is confusing, especially, you know, yeah. here in New York, there are so many different programs that involve different agencies, tax breaks, you know, getting funding. So, you know, New York State offers a program where in New York landowners who, uh, who get a forestry plan written and agree to follow it, they get a tax break. Then there's the NRCS and they've got EQIP and you can get uh, funding to have a plan written 
uh, buy a consultant who you hire, and they'll, they'll offer you funding for that, and then also funding for other things like getting TSI marked, getting TSI cut, that sort of thing. And, you know, that's a different program, and they typically expect that consultant to be a technical service provider. I know that uh, in, the New York City, in the New York City watershed, the Watershed Agricultural Council, they, they offer funding for uh, plans where they'll, they'll pay to have a consultant come out and uh, uh, write a forest management plan. So it, it actually can be tough to navigate. Um, I know DEC, they'll come out and their, their state foresters will, will sometimes come out for the day and write a forest stewardship plan. So there's a number of different routes you can go uh, as far as how foresters charge. Uh, when it comes to a management plan, some of them do it on a per acre basis. Um, most of them have an, an hourly rate that they'll sometimes base uh, calculations off of. Um, uh, a lot of them do charge a, a percentage when it comes to administering a timber sale. Uh, but as far as some of the management planning goes, a lot of them are just sort of trying to cover their time and sustain themselves and not earn too much money really off of the management plans. But you know, cover you know cover their costs, make a little bit of money off of the, the management planning in hopes that they'll have a relationship with that landowner so that they can uh, be the person to to make some money when it comes to administering the timber sale for them. Uh, that's that's really where a lot of, a lot of uh, consultants uh, do better because landowners know that they're they're you know overall even even paying a consultant going to do better uh, by having that timber sale administered with somebody in their corner, particularly when it is a sizable timber sale. So, uh, yeah, it uh, unfortunately can't be a, a simple answer, but uh, there, there are a lot of opportunities out there to explore. So would it be safe to say that if I'm a landowner and I, I want to, if I'm just looking at this from a, from a hunting perspective and I'm thinking, hey, I know I've got all this timber. It's not doing me a whole lot of good because it's mature. It's, it's a monoculture. It's a big, wide open block of the same thing. I know I want to do something to improve for wildlife habitat. Would it be safe to say that, whether it be through timber sale of marketable timber on that chunk and or through tax breaks and or through government programs that help fund certain desired types of habitat practices, that I can get a management um, action taken on my hunting property that will improve my hunting and improve wildlife habitat. I can do that, and there are ways to help cover that and or completely cover the costs or at least help with the costs of making that change if I were to take advantage of these previously listed um, uh, benefits. That's that's right. right? We shouldn't just go in there and think we got to cut everything down ourselves and it's going to cost $10,000 to do it. We can actually look at this as a way of, hey, we might be able to get free habitat improvement or cost assistance with this kind of habitat improvement, but we have to take advantage of these different programs. Yeah, that is accurate. And I, I would say um, having a plan from the forefront helps in a lot of different ways, and there's ways to either they either low cost or free based on what's out there. Um, you know, so I would say if you don't have a management plan for your property, if you're interested in doing this, you want kind of a plan of action, right? Like, like if I were to to leave my house right now without a and I was trying to drive to where you are, Mark, and I had no idea where in Michigan you were, but I knew you were in Michigan, and I just left it would take me a lot longer than if I actually, you send me your address and I put it into my GPS and I got straight there. Right. So a plan will get you someplace faster. So having a plan is, is important. So step one, source the plan, uh, plan writers are free. There's ways to get them. Number two, I would want that plan to be integrated with both. If there's enough value in the timber, uh, with my wildlife centric goals, particularly deer, 
TDMA, we released a, a deer management plan template. It's free. It's a PDF you can fill out. It gives really good guidance. It's actually part of our deer steward program, but it's a free document. You don't have to take deer steward to get it. That's posted on our website. Um, I would say sit down with somebody. If you're using a forester that does not get deer hunting, have them kind of go through, well, either have them take deer steward, which would be awesome uh, for both you, the forester, and for us, um, at least have them sit down with that management plan template and talk through some of those concepts of, hey, this is a concept of what I want to think of so that your deer hunting goals and the land management timber-specific goals are talking to each other. You know, obviously we talked about how all of this influence happened, so you don't want them going to be counterproductive or, you know, working against each other. You want them to be going in the same direction. So number one, have a get a plan written. Number two, make sure your deer hunting goals uh, are, are married to your other land management goals. And then number three, if the property is capable of having something done to it in terms of tree removal and manipulation of that forest, don't be scared of it. There's a lot of people. That's one thing we didn't talk about yet. Are you know, clear cut has been a bad word. Uh, the mess that's left of cutting trees down. You know, people get very they, they don't like change, but it definitely influences uh, deer and and in a good way. And uh, I, I've gone over the years of being um, probably less conservative to being, uh, I mean, more conservative to being less conservative in terms of okay. We want to influence deer nutrition at the highest scale. You got to cut some timber. You got to get, you got to get sunlight down there. You got to get deer eating stuff that grows in, in the ground because, I mean, let's be honest, uh, Mark. You know, most people that are doing things like putting feed out food plots or you know supplemental stuff, you're only treating a percent to a couple percent of your property, right? I mean, and even in ag-dominated landscapes, that agriculture is there during the summer, but it's not once the stuff is harvested. So you're talking about the limiting resource for deer, particularly during the breeding season and when they're at their lowest point nutritionally in the winter, uh, when there's nothing green and growing, is relegated to forests. So why not give them the best benefit by cutting that stuff in a way that gives them food and cover where they want to be? Um, you know, all those folks out there that are interested in growing deer um, or managing deer for health and having them reach their potential per age class, you do that through forestry. You can get some marginal gains by doing all the other things mentioned. They certainly help, but that doesn't carry you. What carries you is where deer live, and a lot of that is in forests. And, and it's, is it fair to say that that forest management, it really benefits so many other species too, not just whitetails, right? If, you, if you're trying to think about the holistic, if the, the whole – ecology of your property and all the animals that are out there forestry management is is a really important way to do that right absolutely it's, it's the foundation tim, tim tell them about you know young forest initiative how many species are influenced by that well sure uh of course you know qdma is on board with the young forest initiative because of the benefits that it offers to to deer but uh Whitetails are not the number one species that are targeted by the overall initiative. Uh, there are other species like uh, New England cottontail, which uh, its its range has uh, seriously decreased because of uh, a lot of forest growing older and not having that young forest on, on the lo- uh, on the landscape. Uh, the same is true with uh, American woodcock is another focal species for the young forest initiative. Uh, golden-winged warbler 
is another focal species, and they, they need uh, young forest cover near the ground, uh, you know, forbs and, and shrubs and saplings springing up where they've got some uh, scattered overstory trees as perch trees to do their singing display. Uh, of course, rough grouse. There used to be a lot more rough grouse in New York than there are today. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I mean, there's a, a very long list of, uh, of, of songbirds and game birds and, uh, you know, of course, rabbits that, uh, that um, can, can benefit greatly from having uh, some of those earlier stages of forest development. You know, something I was talking to someone recently about um, doing some forest management, and they were talking about how when they had a forester come in, they would they'd like to have all the treetops cleared out and taken with them. And I was thinking to myself, why why would you want that? Like, wouldn't you want the treetops left be, in in some instances because because of just like those types of things, like having cover available for rabbits and other species, and you know, some some bedding that deer might like too. Is there anything? To be said about that, do people usually like to get rid of the treetops? Do you leave them? Is is that something that you would ever think about when making plans like this? When when the treetops yeah. come out as part of the logging operation, it's often a whole uh, tree chipping operation where that's just more efficient and it's all usable. So so there that's what they're doing. Uh, in many of the cuts that we see here, and of course a lot of our forests are northern hardwoods. Those tops are left behind initially as some of the larger saw logs and larger firewood is pulled out. Those are left behind, um, and sometimes that's put in a timber sale contract that the landowner retains those uh, for the simple reason that it creates less erosion and less scarring of residual trees compared to dragging those, those crowns out. Um, but what you're describing where people want to see the, the tops gone or commonly also included in contracts that tops are, are lopped down, sometimes a contract will say that the, the logger needs to go with a chainsaw and lop the tops down so that they're below, you know, six feet, below four feet. Sometimes contracts will call for them to be down to 18 inches. That's really a matter of aesthetics. So uh, that the landowner, when they walk through their, their forest when you're done, I mean, logging, forestry when done right it doesn't look pretty immediately after it happens and so that's one way that people have have, uh you know basically made it look like a a prettier timber sale afterwards but uh you know absolutely leaving some of those tops both in place and leaving them up you know maybe not where they're they're way up in the sky but that they're you know six eight even 10 feet high that's going to offer side cover that's going to offer cover to small mammals like you alluded to and uh in, in many cases can be significant in protecting some of the uh regeneration coming in in cases that we want deer to be able to benefit from some of that but also want to be able to protect some of it so that it becomes part of that next age class were you going to add anything matt not what he said <laughs> uh, so speaking of um just the the aesthetics a little bit of it and how it is in some of these cases if you're doing a more of an even stand management practice where you're coming in and doing something pretty dramatic um is there anything that we should know about the timing of something like this so that might be different maybe than your general forester might come in and say hey we're just going to do this as soon as we can get to it but if i'm a deer hunter and I'm trying to manage this for the best possible hunting habitat that coming season. Would it be best to do this kind of thing like in the winter right now? Or, or when's the best time to maximize the reproduction of, of new growth and all these other things? But that would depend on, on a lot for, for reasons other than just hunting. I mean, for one, as far as hunting goes, you know, it, it occurs to me how many times I've gone on a recently completed or even active logging job and seen how many deer have come uh, just to 
just to chew some of the buds off of the treetops that are laying there so there can be that impact. Uh, certain species that we're working with uh, have a tendency to sprout from the stumps or the root system, and oftentimes we get a better sprouting or coppicing response when we cut during the winter, and that might be desirable. Um, and then on the opposite side, if we're dealing with some species where we expect them to sprout and we don't want them to sprout and that can be a problem, it might be more beneficial to cut them during the summertime and more beneficial still to cut them during the summertime so that we can apply herbicide to them. Uh, apart from that, you know, you think of the time of year, depending on some sites that might be wetter, you might require that the trails are, are frozen or dry during the, the heat of summer. Um, and then there are other things like you think about the time of year that, uh, you know, trees have seeds on them you know are you cutting them just before they're going to put seeds out for the season or are they hanging on to viable seeds that haven't fallen yet and now when you drop the tree the seeds fall right where that crown is so that's where your seedlings are coming up and being protected so uh yeah unfortunately uh again it, it kind of comes to a it depends answer because it has to do with uh, which tree species you're trying to regenerate or not regenerate what the site conditions are um, in new york some people are faced with uh, time of year cutting restrictions because of an effort to protect endangered bats that roost in those trees during the summertime and then go into caves during the wintertime. So there are, are certainly a whole lot of factors that uh, that can play into the, the timing of a regeneration cut. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, and, and one thing to add to that, I mean, uh, I would say from the deer hunter's perspective, although that's, that is all true, I would I would less care about the timing and make sure that it's the right time um, for all the environmental reasons. You know, a lot of it is weather dependent and, you know, accessibility. Sometimes it's scheduling based on when that crew can get there. If, if the forester you're working with is, you know, using specific crews to do, uh, you know, there's all kinds of different logging operations out there from small operators to, to you know, machinery that's very big that takes up a lot of space and it's fully mechanized. So whatever scale the property is, and whatever operator would be the most efficient for you to, to you know, get it done with quickly, um, uh, they all lend itself to, to different things. Uh, but a lot of it is going to end up probably, especially on one of those larger operations, Mark, is the market. You know, in terms of when that wood is valuable, sometimes it's very specific to a time of year based on the need. Uh, where I've seen like crews move in and not necessarily a short notice, but just say, hey prices are really good on oak now, for example, we want to cut that now because it might not be in six months. So um, if the ground can hold it and, and, and handle it environmentally wise, there's a lot of good best management practices out there where state agent, state forestry agencies and environmental protection agencies will make sure that they're not happening at bad times of the year, that there's, you know, erosion is at the, at the least or minimized as much as possible. Um, and you're not really, uh, you know, ruts are not happening. A lot of that, those BMPs are followed. Um, I, you know, financial-driven uh, decisions are usually what comes into play. And I would say, for the deer hunter, let those things make those decisions because, as we all know, seasons come and go, and deer react to it. Although it might not be ideal for a uh, three-month or six-month period for your deer hunting, um, it will make it better in the big picture. And if that's when that crew's available, I would I would let it let it happen, even though it might be, it would be a little bit of a punch in the gut if something's happening right when you're about to hunt. Uh, the hunting will get better. And I do listen to your podcast, Mark, and I know that Dan, uh, your co-host, had talked about that um, <laughs> not that long ago, but I've also yeah. heard him recently say that things are, good, are pretty good right now. And 
if the Dan from a couple of years ago could talk to the Dan today, I would imagine he'd be like, yeah, all right, things are things are pretty hot because that's where the deer are. Yeah, I think that's a perfect example. He was really stressed out about it that one year, but now it's been a few years and things are looking really good. So that's, that is a perfect yeah. illustration of that concept. Um, His stress level sounds like it came down quite a bit. <laughs> it might be rising for other reasons, but, but at least <laughs> yeah. for, for that one thing, it's down. So one back back a little bit to um some of the DIY options. I feel like when we start to get into at least when deer hunters start talking about managing timber and cover, one of the first things people usually jump to is hinge cutting because it seems like the easiest thing that you as an individual can do without knowing a whole lot, without like feeling comfortable falling great big trees, without hiring someone. It just seems to be like the most accessible way to manage some degree of timber because you can go out there with a chainsaw and cut down or you know hinge cut some small trees and you can you can manage to a degree. So a lot of people seem to do it. It's very popular. People are always talking about all these different strategic ways to hinge cut. And you, you hear some people talk about their properties. You go look at some properties, and these things are hinge cut all over the place, like tons and tons and tons of hinge cutting. From your guys' perspective, from a forestry perspective, um, do you see any downside to the popularity of hinge cutting, or do you see anything that's being done or, or, or promoted or recommended to folks as far as hinge cutting that actually from a forester's perspective – perspective that hey we're actually missing the boat on some of this stuff any like mistakes that pop out to you guys that's a great question i figured we'd get into hinge cutting a little bit and i'll 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 try to cover as many bases as possible um so tim has mentioned uh the kind of intermediate you know when the forest is not quite mature enough to get something out of it in terms of value for the wood um, when trees are are smaller size you know mid-sized um, there's a lot of things you can do to influence that, and there's a lot of different techniques. That's the timber stand improvement, TSI, what people say. TSI is basically removing trees that are, uh, I don't want to use the word runs, but the trees that are not either the species is not what you want there or they're competing with trees that you do want there, but it's the removal or killing of trees that you don't want and leaving up the ones that you do want. That can be done a number of different ways. You can do that through cutting the tree down completely and removing it, um, if you can get firewood out of it, if there's a product there, cutting it down and leaving it on the forest floor, you can uh, girdle it, you can hack and squirt. Yes, you can hinge cut it. The, the goal there is to influence competition. So leaving your favorite species and, and uh, taking away the ones that are undesirable and influencing structure um, and, and sunlight. So basically getting more in, sunlight in there. So hinge cutting is, is one of those techniques um, that can be used. Um, I think a lot of under the untrained eye, um, what a lot of folks are doing is they're just removing trees that they don't want there or just want the cover aspect without thinking about the food side of it. And Tim mentioned earlier, um, you know, if you kill a tree, if you spray it with some chemical and the tree is dead from the root down, you're not going to get the sprouting effect. And if it's a tree that deer want to eat the sprouts of, um, it might be counterintuitive. So you can hinge a tree that is an undesirable food. And if that tree sprouts, all you're doing is providing, yes, some cover, but a lot of food at the ground level is something deer don't really want to eat. So there's that side of it. Um, a couple of years ago, uh, one of our colleague, colleagues wrote a, a really good article. It's on our website about um, uh, kind of clues that you might be hinge cutting 
too much. And uh, he had talked about species, and that, that's kind of one of those examples, not knowing the species of the trees you're cutting and what's going to happen there. And there's, I don't know, a handful of other ones uh, listed. I would recommend you go look for that. If you're interested in hinge cutting, find that article on there. Safety is certainly another one. Um, safely cutting a tree down, um, it comes with risk. The larger the diameter of the tree, um, you're certainly uh, better off at felling that tree down through a technique that will drop the tree directional felling where the tree goes in a very predictable way. We kind of have a general rule of thumb at QDMA. I mean, it's not like a policy or anything, but we recommend to folks that if you can influence the direction of that tree with the power of your hand or one of those tools to basically push it, um, you know, so about the size of your thigh or smaller, um, you could hinge it. But if it's getting larger than that, where no matter how hard you push with the, in your hand on that tree, once it's been hinged or cut, that tree's going wherever it wants to, you know, the risk goes up exponentially. So safety is certainly another thing I think of on the hinge cutting kind of uh, wagon that a lot of people are jumping on. And then from a forestry perspective, one thing I'll, I'll, I'll finish with, and then Tim, feel free to jump in, is, um, you know, one of the things that it does is, yes, it creates a lot of that side cover similar to leaving tops in the woods, right? You get all of this structure out there um, where deer are going to bed underneath and people try to influence exactly where deer bed by doing hinge cuts. And uh, it certainly has a value to it. But from a forestry perspective, you're creating, if you do a lot of that, uh, an example of where, um, not an example, but you're creating a situation where it's going to be really hard to come back in in seven to 10 years and remove some other trees. So if it's part of a forestry operation uh, where you hope to continually come in and do uneven age management, for example, um, you're pretty much creating a very difficult situation where a logger can't get around there anymore. Um, they can't move their machinery without clearing some of it you know, out of the way and it's just going to take a lot of time and it's going to cost more for you to do it. And if you do things like prescribed fire or other uh, land management techniques, it's becoming more and more difficult. Now, I know a lot of folks that do a lot of hinge cutting have smaller properties and they say, listen, I can never get a forester in here or a logging crew because I only own 10 or 20 acres. And there's truth to that. Um, but if you're part of a co-op and you're working with your landowners, we talked about earlier, you can thwart the, some of that and, and actually get the economy of scale to a point where you can have somebody come in. Um, I prefer to treat, remove trees completely, um, either removing them, using that product, or doing some safe techniques where um, directional felling, uh, hinging, I mean, not hinging, uh, um, girdling and spraying in the interior of forests. So any place that is in where I want to manage a forest through silviculture with you know the operations that we talked earlier, even or uneven age management, I am not hinge cutting. I think it has its best place, and that article talks about this to a degree on our website, on the edges of habitat. And Tim uh, talked about edge feathering, um, you know, so where you're basically working on the edges of what is open and that wall of forest where you're trying to get a soft edge as opposed to a hard edge. Hinge cutting has certainly a place there. A lot of times the timber on the edge of a field is not going to be your highest quality because those trees will be more limby. Um, they will have more limbs on the, the bowl of the tree in the mid stem, in the mid story, because they are trying to reach out into the field. So they have a, a limb there. 
And because of that, their timber value is not that great. And what a great way to, to influence deer bedding than, you know, 50 to 100 yards or maybe not quite 100 yards, but just off the field edge, you want deer bedding there. So that's what hinge cutting is done for. Why not place it on your field edges or where there's some open space and you're trying to do some of that edge feathering? If I was to move to the interior of the forest for all of those other reasons, I would want to do straight-up silviculture, manage at a scale with where I can actually influence nutrition at a maximum way, get deer bedding under you know even age management, deer, deer travel patterns through uneven age management, and just be able to go in there and continually treat it with a crew, you know, have them come in and do large-scale stuff. That's where it makes the most sense to me. Okay. I'd like to kind of jump off what Matt said there about doing it near the edge and and say I've seen a few places where uh, hinge cuts have uh, essentially died rather rapidly. Uh, You know, when you go out into the interior of the forest and you're doing these hinge cuts, particularly where maybe no real thinning is taking place and the trees that you're hinge cutting are, you know, maybe in the lower canopy because they're the smaller trees that you want to hinge cut. And, uh, you know, you get that initial sprouting response, which is kind of a distress response, but there's now not enough sunlight for that tree now that it's on the floor to actually continue to grow and and grow new sprouts. Uh, So you definitely want to uh, consider that and maybe, you know, have a reasonable expectation when you're in the dark forest compared to in an area or on the edge of an area that's been clear cut or the edge of an existing field where the tree can sprout and now those sprouts grow leaves and get sunlight and continue to grow despite being horizontal. Uh, And I would also point out, you know, with the hinge cutting, um, there are a number of different ways that hinge cutting itself has been used to, uh, you know, create bedding areas just to provide some some browse uh, when when deer need it or or to actually create a a bottleneck to influence deer movement across the landscape. So uh, just like some of these other practices, certainly consider before you go around and start cutting trees, hinge cutting them or cutting them down, what is your ultimate goal in doing this work? And in the case of hinge cutting, you know, do consider if I'm going to hinge cut, is this going to be any different or how would this be different compared to if I just severed the tree, you know, from the stump and allowed those, those sprouts to come in? It, it's like any other tool in a toolbox. It has it has certainly a very high value and purpose. It just needs to be applied in the right place. You know, you're, you're, you got to grab a hammer to hammer a nail, not a, not a uh, crescent wrench, you know, so... You gotta just figure out where it has the best place. Now, there is a lot of folks out there with small properties that uh, don't work with their neighbors and they've hinge cut, you know, their entire 10 acres in some way, shape, or form. And I can guarantee you, Mark, the deer are gonna be betting in there. I mean, I I certainly would say that is going to have that influence that they're hoping for. Um, But, I mean, I wouldn't put it under the word sad, but it certainly has caught on and a lot of people have been doing it. And uh, I just say, think about where it's the best place to use it so that you get the maximum benefit. And, uh, and you're also not risking your life, you know, and sometimes some places um, it can be very risky to, to hinge some of those bigger trees and uh, folks are hinging them. And it, it makes me grimace a little bit that their safety's um, at risk. You know, I, I don't, I don't like seeing that. I'd rather them be safely at home and have somebody in there with a feller buncher that's going in and cutting those trees down. You're going to get the sunlight in there and the trees are going to respond and they're going to be bedding it. And yeah. that, that happens too. Yeah. Well, uh, 
you just kind of blew my mind there, Matt, because all these years I've been using crescent wrenches trying to get my nails in and never worked too well. And so now, <laughs> now I know I am not so handy. <laughs> but um, in all seriousness, <laughs> you're welcome. In all seriousness, um, this is. This has been really interesting, really helpful for people. I think I think for anyone out there who hunts deer, cares about deer and wildlife and wildlife habitat, there's there's some pretty interesting things in this conversation. I think understanding habitat, understanding habitat um, improvement and management and forestry being one of those ways of doing that, it, it just helps with a holistic understanding of, of this creature and, and how we interact with it. So so thank you guys for sharing such in depth um, insight into all of this, but I got to believe there's a whole lot of stuff we have not covered still. There's a lot more to it. Um, if people want to learn more about this or if they want to learn more about the Young Forest Initiative um, or anything that we've kind of discussed, could you guys point out a few places that folks can go to dive into this, these topics further? Matt, maybe you want to kick it off? Sure. Well, if, you, if you're not a member of QDMA and you've never been on our website, uh, either way, just our website's QDMA.com. So I would say there's a lot of stuff there. There's a little search window that you can type in habitat management. There's a whole um, menu option of habitat management. You can look through all of our articles there. Um, certainly, if you aren't a member, we'd love to have you. You belong with us if you're if you're a deer hunter, so join. Uh, it's good to be part of a conservation organization that fights for, you know, what one of your passions. If you're a deer hunter, we'd love to have you as part of our family. And uh, it's not that expensive, and you get a great magazine, some great authors out there that have written, like Mark. Um, and then one final thing I'll say um, is that we have a series of different classes and training. Some of them are online. Some of them you can attend in person. We dive pretty deeply into the habitat management realm in all of those. And certainly we, I mean, we've been talking a while now um, today. This is all forestry. There's all other kinds of habitat management you can do as well, you know, including food plots. A lot of people go to managing, you know, putting in food plots. Um, but one of the big things is, is just managing early succession. So not even forestry or young forest, but basically that first flush of forbs and and young growth, if you disturb an area and walk away, deer really, really need that. And and that's been kind of uh, an eye-opening thing for a lot of folks. So we cover all of that in those classes. That's under the conserve menu uh, class we do called Deer Steward. We actually have um, a couple in-person classes this year, one in South Carolina in June, um, one in Ohio in uh, September, so, you know, check that stuff out. I'm listed on that website. If you're interested in attending some of that stuff, you can reach out to me. Perfect. Anything you would add, Tim? Sure. For anybody interested in learning more about the Young Forest Initiative, uh, check out youngforest.org, which is uh, run by Wildlife Management Institute. And as far as getting general forestry information, I would say reach out to your state agency or cooperative extension locally because uh, forestry is something of a regional practice where, you know, if you transplanted me a thousand miles away, I probably would not be able to offer sound advice the way your local foresters could. Perfect. All right. Good good advice. And thank you for mentioning those additional places we can check out. And um, you, you both have left me with a lot to think about. Uh, we're, we're trying to implement some of this stuff on our northern Michigan deer camp. We've actually been, I've been looking into trying to find a forester myself and hopefully going to set up some meetings here in the next couple of weeks and look at some things that we can do related to all these topics um, to, to improve the wildlife habitat for our little neck of the woods. And uh, this certainly helped me kind of steer the direction I need to go. So thank you, Matt. Thank you, Tim. 
And uh, this has been great. Thanks for having us, Mark. Thanks for having us, Mark. It's always it's always a pleasure to have, to have you on the show, Matt. And Tim, hopefully you can come again. All right. And that's going to do it for us today. So thank you for tuning in. Hopefully you found this one interesting. I certainly learned a lot from this because this is a topic that, uh, you know, it's relatively new for me. So I definitely came out of this conversation uh, with some important lessons learned. Now, I want to leave you with a couple reminders. One, if you haven't yet left a rating or review on iTunes for this podcast, you know, I've been you know, preaching this for years now, uh, but I'm still going to keep mentioning it because it really does help and I really do appreciate it. So thank you in advance if you're able to go on there and share some feedback. Also, I'm putting a lot of my content now in two places. TheMediator.com is where all my new articles are. That's where the articles that include the new podcasts are as well. So make sure you're following what's going on over at TheMediator.com. And then secondly, the Wired Hunt Instagram account has more than it ever has before. I'm doing almost daily stories documenting all sorts of things going on in my whitetail life um, as well as different recommended books, um, different breakdowns of properties. You can find that all at Wired to Hunt on Instagram. And other than that, I just want to uh, wish you all luck in the woods if you're shed hunting, uh, if you're out there scouting or hanging stands or working on some habitat. I hope you're having fun with that too. And as always, thank you for listening. And until next time, stay wired to hunt. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more.